This week, we welcome Jerry Chen. He's the co-founder of Firewalla to discuss working from home and making things secure in your home network. In our second segment, we welcome Ryan Hayes, Offensive Security Manager at RSA Security, to talk about OS Int, scraping with Python. In the security news, Cisco releases a security advisory for a Telnet vulnerability in iOS XE software. Firefox 78 is out with a mysteriously empty list of security fixes. Python arbitrary file write prevention, the tar bomb. New Lucifer DDoS botnet targets Windows systems with multiple exploits. Critical Apache guacamole flaws put risk, uh, put remote desktops at risk of hacking from chips maybe uh, there's a better joke in there somewhere the internet is too unsafe and why we need more hackers all that and more on this episode of paul's security weekly this is security weekly for security professionals by security professionals Broadcasting live from G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island, it's the show where exploits run wild, packets aren't the only things getting sniffed, and the cocktails flow steady. It's Paul's Security Weekly. Are you an enterprise dissatisfied with overpriced analytics software that can't keep up with modern data? If so, then GraphWell is the solution for you. GraphWell is an unstructured data analytics platform for enterprises who demand total data visibility across their network. GraphWell lets your security team go beyond the SIM and fuse data sources to correlate and answer questions you didn't know needed to be asked. Go to gravwell.io forward slash security weekly for an unlimited data trial and gain uncompromising visibility today. The biggest problem in security that remains unsolved is flat networks inside the cloud and data center that allow threats to move laterally and compromise vulnerable targets. But micro-segmentation using traditional firewalls is too complex and time-consuming. There's a better approach. Edgewise Zero Trust Auto Segmentation. Edgewise is impossibly simple micro-segmentation. Using the identity of machines and software that are communicating, Edgewise offers the strongest protection that adapts automatically to changes. Protect any application in any cloud without any changes to your network by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash Edgewise. Good evening. In tonight's production of Paul's Security Weekly, the part of the aging cheerleader will be performed by Mr. Jeff Mann, the part of the saucy schoolgirl by Mr. Doug White, and the part of the narrator will be performed by Mr. Paul Asadorian. Thank you and enjoy the performance. Welcome to Paul Security Weekly. It's episode number 656, recorded on July 2nd, 2020, right here in G-Unit Studios in Rhode Island. To my left, they call him the doctor, Dr. Doug. Dr. Doug White is in the house. Yeah, I'm here again. It's been so long. I was getting it's shakes. Wonderful. I'm so glad you're here I'm in studio with me. Standing down on the street corner going like, hey, man. <laughs> we actually get to like converse in person. It's <laughs> it's a very bizarre thing. Yeah, I know. I showed you stuff and pee-pee works. He did. Yeah. <laughs> I saw the pee-pee. Yeah. It works. Yeah. It worked. Definitely works. <laughs> on the lines are remotely, Mr. Tyler Robinson is here. Tyler, welcome. Buenos dias, buenos dias. Glad to be back. Two weeks is way too long. Way too long. Mr. Jeff Mann is with us. Jeff, welcome. Uh, ecstatic to be back here again in two weeks. I concur. Way too long. And of course, Mr. Lee Neely, you've got a, a port. Is that? Yes. Is that yes. is that Good of the? Back. I've got a port and some chocolate. Is that a, a TCP variety of port or a UDP variety of, of port? Um. 
I definitely think there's no reliable problem, so I think it's TCP port. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. There you go. It's awesome. Uh, a couple of quick announcements uh, before we get started with all the recent changes to Black Hat and DEF CON. We realize we can keep doing what we do best, and that's host virtual podcasts. Uh, I'm proud to announce Hacker Summer Camp 2020 is a Security Weekly virtual live streaming event August 3rd through the 6th. Reserve your slot today if you'd like to sponsor an interview uh, by your company and would like to talk about your product and why it's awesome and how it's different from everyone else's with some of the hosts here at Security Weekly during that live streaming event, you can go to securityweekly.com forward slash summer camp 2020. Uh, I'm very excited to welcome Jerry Chen. He is the founder of Firewalla. Before that, uh, he spent nearly 20 years working at Cisco Systems, where he was a senior manager and ran many projects in the security technology group, core routing group, and consumer business unit. He was also a member of the Cisco InfoSec team focusing on data protection. Jerry, welcome to the program. Thank you for having me here. Yeah. You guys being security fun. Yeah, it's it's awesome, dude. I, I didn't know you spent um, all that time at uh, Cisco. We're going to now pepper you with... I'm trying to remember how to configure VLANs from the top of my head. And like, it's not... it's not. I have to read. <laughs> I can't do that anymore. It's been too over like 20 years, you know? It happens. Router on a stick. Five minutes, go. That's it. it it's, it's, like, it's like paddling a kayak, Paul. You just That's you right. get right back into it. Yes. Um, so, uh, Jerry, I, uh, how did you get your start in information security before you uh, uh, came to, to Cisco? Um, I, I actually started with product security. So many, many years ago, probably I think 20 years ago, I started building very large routers. And one of the things I was in charge in this is all the packet going to the, uh, uh, what's it called, uh, RP, route, <laughs> router, router, router. Route processor going to the route processor, right? So this, the, the, these are all the packets uh, going to the operating system. So I was playing with that until um, I start to do uh, extreme testing uh, with these routers, and and suddenly I realized it's extremely fun um, to look at how to secure very large routers. Right? So this is my first uh, touch with cybersecurity, and that was extremely interesting because the routers I used to work with are, I think, two or three million dollars each and they run cities. Um, later, I got into information security because um, it's again, it's something fun. So I, I started doing um, a lot of inside threads. So trying to take care of that and start to see how uh, an organization or a company worked inside from a cybersecurity perspective, right? So not just making policies, but also looking at the tools how to secure uh, insiders, right? So insider, insider threat, it was my uh, focus during that time. Um, so that's also fun. It's a lot of policy work, uh, a lot of the tools, and we actually created uh, a bunch of tools ourselves within the company. Yeah, that's how I got started. It's, it's definitely uh, exciting and interesting. That's awesome. Um, so uh, how did you come to uh, kind of get interested in uh, developing your own product uh, and bringing it to market specifically in the uh, home networking arena? Um, yeah, interesting story. So the, um, in 2015, I was, one day I was walking downstairs and, and I, I saw one of my uh, kids' nanny cam start moving. So that's the moment that I said I need to do something. Um, you know, like I said, I've been doing networking and security for a very long time. And 
you know, having a camera start moving on me, right, it's kind of scary, right? So after I, I see that camera start moving, I, I think what I realize I can't really do anything because I have a really, you know, a router from ISP. Um, I really don't know how to do ACLs on that router, right? So when the uh, camera is moving, it means it's hacked. Right? It's not me who's controlling, somebody else was controlling it. Um, so I spent about a day actually to take out my old Cisco router and uh, another few hours researching, actually re-remember all the Cisco CLI commands to figure out how to, how to see all the network flows, right? So if you guys know NetFlows, uh, how, do you, how do you see it? How do I see what this camera is doing? Because I was curious, right? Uh, I, I, I probably can unplug it, but that, that was not very interesting. Uh, then after, you know, I do see streams going out and they're going to multiple IP addresses. Either the camera was attacking other devices or is sending video to somebody else, right? So that was the interesting moment. The first, vis uh, first thing is like, how do I get visibility to this camera? How do I know what is it doing? And second one is actually without unplugging it, can I fix the problem, right? So this is the second thing. Um, then I have to figure out how the ACL stuff works, uh, looking at ACL ports. So extremely even, this thing is complex for me, right? It's very complex for me. And I realized a lot of people have the same issue and most of them probably don't have a Cisco router around that can do, I think that command was show IP top talkers. Uh, one of the, uh, uh, one of the command that shows the, the top net flow going out and also in, into the router itself. So that's the moment say I have to build something simple. So I, I, so powerful is definitely, but we have to build, I mean, I have to build something extremely simple such uh, people can see what their IoT devices are doing and you know, have some type of control to their home network. So that's, that's how I got started. It's, it's just this, this old camera sitting there for two years, I didn't know it even existed and start moving. That was just a moment. It's kind of scary. Uh, this is 2015. Yeah, it's kind of, it, you know, it's interesting when I uh, read some of the advice that people put out there for the general public. They're like, oh, well, just, you know, make sure your firewall's locked down and doesn't accept connections from the inside. And when you were telling that story, Jerry, I was like, well, what if it was pre-owned? What if it went out and did a software update and someone compromised the software update server? What if someone put an app on my phone and it found that device and then compromised it, right? Like there's so many different attack vectors. And I feel like not very many of us monitor our home networks as closely as we do the ones we use at work. Uh, How is your wife going to view that externally as well? Yeah. Like usability and external mm -hmm. apps connecting is uh, probably one of the biggest issues that, that you run into. So I, I think the, 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 the special thing about the home is um, so when you work for a corporate, you have security policies, right? You have people who look after those security policies. You have people who's patching your software, right? Very simple things. There's nothing complex about patching software. In my case, it's pretty much just a one simple camera sitting there connected. I don't know if it existed. Um, there is no upgrade for that software. And that camera is one of the camera got, it's pretty famous one uh, that, that get hacked very often. So that's the thing I feel is important, right? Just bring some of the common practices from uh, uh, enterprises or corporation to the whole, right? N not the strict version, but just more something uh, simpler, right? Visibility and control 
at least you have something. If somebody hacking your stuff, you can stop it. Right? So that's that, that was our key. Mm. It, 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 Tyler and I have been working on this project, and I wanted to ask you, uh, Jerry, and I, I think, Tyler, the first thing that you and I both kind of thought of was, how do I segment my home network? How do I separate family and entertainment devices? And, Jerry, I don't know if you've given this uh, some thought as to how we could use even simple segmentation to make things better in the home security-wise. Um, so segmentation is pretty much... Uh, divide your home network into pieces, right? So you have a segment for kids, one segment for IoT devices, and one segment for work. And these are all uh, layer three networks. And what's important, I think consumer homes say, you don't want to buy anything special. Um, think about the guest network. So you probably have a router that has a guest network and also main network. I've seen people done this putting IoT devices on the uh, guest network. For example, you can put cameras on it and your main network is your, you know, maybe work PC or a kid's PC, right? Uh, it's, um, it's a bit limited because the guest network is hard-coded, right? It means like it's just a network. You can't really put any policy on it, right? So a lot of routers have that capability. Uh, it's underutilized. So uh, I think that's one way that uh, if you don't want to buy any special equipment, uh, that's one way to segment your network. But uh, if you're looking for more complex segmentation, we actually build a, a new device. I'm not sure I can show it here. It's like this little thing here, this uh, firewall of gold. Uh, what this box does is able to segment um, port level or VLAN level. And the segmentation is a bit special because we can put policies between segments, right? Uh, if you look at your, your home router, you can do guest a non-guest and they don't talk to each other. But uh, with our box, you can put a policy, say, um, if I'm on the work segment, my PC able to print to my IoT segment where my printer is, but my printer cannot talk to my work segment. Right? So this is one of the policies that you can put in there. And we have people using our, our gold box, they, they created a segment for kids, right? And they put all kind of control in the kids segment in that case, like the kids are extremely locked down, but the adults are not. <laughs> so this is uh, this is another usage to it. So uh, Jerry, I um I have one of those Cotom um, firewall devices, and I put PFSense uh, on it. I mean, other than the usability factor, right? Um, what are some of the other features that folks should be looking for? You know, uh, versus uh, on those type of platforms where you're making it easy. Um, whereas, you know, on that device, like you, you have to know how to load the operating system, install it, configure, uh, PF sense, right. Which using some of these, uh, more home friendly devices, certainly the usability is, uh, is much better, but what are some of the other features that, um, you know, you can offer on, on that type of device that you are, uh, currently, I, I believe you're in like in beta for these, the pre-order uh -huh. or something. We're almost shipping the, the gold mm. version is almost shipping and we also have the smaller the little ones, and these are, are, are uh, on sale on uh, our websites. Yeah. So, uh, so in terms of your question, uh, what kind of special? I think um, so. Usability side is definitely something we're focusing on. Remember the the story I I talk about is where you know I need to take out my Cisco stuff out and start. Uh, messing with it, right? Uh, re-remember all the CLI commands, re-remember uh, all the ACL commands, 
And this is the, the goal we're trying not to do. We're trying to make security a little bit simpler. So if you guys understand, if you do IT and at work, you do a lot of IT. When you go home, you probably don't want to do too much IT. Right? So this is the key that we build. We build something simpler, but not very dumb, right? Um, we build, um, you know, our, our stuff is building, um, building on top of Linux, right? So it's, it's actually one of the, very expandable platforms. You can go inside, you're going to get a Ubuntu uh, Linux and you're going to get a Bash shell, right? So this is something special about us. It's simple, but not too simple. Um, so in terms of features, um, I think it's more like integration. How do we put things together that you don't need to spend time to install uh, packages, for example, right? So if you get a firewall that's, you know, PFSense is a very good firewall, but you need to, there's a learning curve and there's a way to put things together, right? You can install different packages, but the issue is actually these things need to talk to each other, right? If you're into security, when things link seamlessly, right? If an event happens, something else happened, then you do a control, right? And you be smart about it. And this is the key of our system. Everything is integrated. If something goes, so for example, if you detect something, uh, the whole system able to react as one system, right? Instead of you have multiple parts that you install, right? So it's more like a, a system that connect, connects very well and works very simple, but not too simple. Jerry, and along those lines, there are some other solutions on the market uh, that I won't name, but they won't share how their device works. It's basically, well, it's white, but it's a, a black box kind of uh, system in terms of you put it on your network, they give you an app, and that's all you get, right? And, you know, for those of us that work in InfoSec, I'm like, I, do I like want to stick something on, like that on my network? And also, if it causes problems, how do I, how do I troubleshoot it? Because it's essentially this closed off system. Um, in your solution, do you uh, like? Can you expand upon some of the technologies underneath and how some of the things work that do things like protection and/or taking something off the network or blocking certain things? So uh, our system is actually open source. And if you go to GitHub/slash/firewalla/slash/firewalla, you're gonna see the code running on our boxes there. Right. So if you're curious, want to read code, you can go there and just look at it. Um, we use a lot of open source. Uh, so our foundation is Linux, right? So uh, we use IP tables, um, and our uh, the core IDS is actually Bro, and yep. I think right now they change the name to Zeek. Zeek yep. Um, we like it a lot because that system is very good at extracting flows. Remember, most of my team members are from Cisco, so we love NetFlows. We like mm. to look at flows between the network, right? So we use that technology, and we use. Um, bit and pieces of, of Linux, right? So we have, uh, we have code running on top of Linux to do things. Um, so if you're interested in the code is open source, you can see what it is. And we actually have people go inside fork that code and run that piece of code on our devices, right? So we, we give that flexibility for you to, uh, to enhance it. Uh, if you don't want to, you can actually send us a request, say, uh, we need this feature uh, and can you please add it? We usually do if it makes sense. Right. So we're pretty open on how we do things and, and, and what kind of things we do with the system. I, and again, you know, I find that many folks are really in, in articles out there are focused on blocking what's coming from the outside in. Um, 
how are you able to apply uh, rules and enforce them on things from the inside talking out? And what kind of visibility do we get into that? Um, <clears throat> so we, uh, if you look at our, our, our red and blue units, right, these little ones here. So these two are, are I call them the, the outbound firewalls because they connect to your router, right? And they take care of all the traffic inside your home. So what's important for us is, um, uh, if you look at your home, it's actually, if you have a firewall, right? most people think that NAT is a firewall, it's actually not. But in case you think it is, then it is. Uh, you have a, a, a harder outer shell, right? Um, so you don't really see what's going out from your home. Uh, there are two things you see going out is, you know, malware, right? So some, for example, my camera gets hacked and it's somebody streaming stuff outside. Right. Um, so this is the visibility. We're going to show you what kind of flows are, 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 are going out. And the other side is kids. Right. Or um, I think small business will also worry what kind of things that their employees doing. Uh, it's the same same category. Right. How do you control access to information from inside a, a network? So these are the functions of the, the outbound firewall. Right. The outbound firewall is able to see what's going out when they see something abnormal. Uh, like our system will warn you. For example, uh, if the camera is, is at midnight, it's actually sending stuff out, right? A gigabyte out, we're going to send you a warning, hey, this is something going on that you who's sending stuff out. Um, if the camera is going to play, you can actually control and say, I don't want my cameras to go to certain countries. And then you can enable this region blocks um, 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 from inside to out, right? You can say, I don't want certain countries uh, to send traffic to my devices or my device to certain countries, that you can do that, right? Um, so we have, uh, because our system sees all the flows, we can manipulate all the different flows, right? It can, it can block them, it can, I think with a gold device, uh, we eventually have QoS as well, the quality of service stuff. It, it will have more, even more fun things to, uh, to do on the home network. Yeah, I, I definitely, we, we hear from folks all the time, you know, that come on the show remotely, Oh, you know, my kids are gaming or, or, you know, doing something and having that quality of service uh, is, is a really nice feature as well. Um, but in, in terms of um, the device itself, and you said that, uh, you know, you can block certain things content wise. Um, talk about your ad blocking and how you're uh, achieving that on these devices. Um, so we, so ad blocking is a very, Okay, it's a strange topic, right? So um, people don't like to see ads, and and um, there's two kind of people. Some people just say, okay, remove some ads. Uh, there are some people say, I want to remove all ads, right? Um, all the way to remove ads from YouTube. So what our approach to ad blocking is more on the usability side, because when you block an ad, there may be an ad blocker blocker, right? Then there will be ad blocker blocker blocker, right? You can't. It, this thing will go infinite. And it will drive everybody crazy. So what our pro approach to ad blocking is, is making life still work while you can block some ads. Uh, we don't block all the ads. We block those that won't, won't cause your experience to be really bad when you're serving the, the web or you know, watching YouTube. Um, so the ad blocking is all done uh, on the box itself. So it doesn't send data anywhere. Uh, it's, it's quite a simple thing that we can uh, if if you're not anal about uh, ads, this will be a, a good 
system, right? So you, uh, the probability of you running into an issue with ad blocking is thought a lot less. So this is how we designed it. Yeah, and I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, Jerry, because I implemented ad blocking here on our, our local network for Security Weekly, and it, you know, it caused issues, uh, you know, like you said, such as, well, if I need to take out a Google ad or something, then I can't get to the site. Like, there's legitimate issues for uh, yeah. accessing, you know, certain ad uh, systems, right. um, and then you have to go manually whitelist, and then you're just constantly in this in this battle. So, That's so do, do I have to point my DNS at the firewall device, or is that an option? Um, so, firewall is a it's a inline device, which means it sees all the traffic. So, in that case, you don't really need to configure anything. You just need to say, "I want ad blocking," and ad blocking will work. It doesn't matter what. Uh, DNS you pick on your side, uh, the system mm. will override it. Mm. Ah. It sees traffic, so this is the, the misconception. So we're not like a DNS, we are a D DNS system, but we are also an inline device, which means it sees all the flows. And we even have a tutorial where you can go and you know in, in, install uh, T-Shark on it, right? See all the nice. traffic from everywhere. It's it's definitely interesting. We have a lot of people messing around with our our box doing things like that. And but, it, that kind yeah. of leads into my next question. And many of us struggle with, you know, we have these services, and I'll I'll, I'll pick on YouTube, but this I mean this could really be any service, right? Where it has an educational value. It serves a purpose in our home. If we need to fix something, you go look it up on YouTube, yep. right? Uh, the kids are uh, actually got assignments from teachers where they had to go watch stuff on YouTube. However, if you are of any level of curiosity, especially a, a child, and you start hunting around on YouTube, you can find inappropriate content. And you know this <coughs> transfers into a lot of these other services and social media networks. Jerry, what's your take on allowing a service but controlling the content within it is that on the content provider or are there things that we can do uh on our own networks to prevent our kids from stumbling across inappropriate content uh, so this question have uh, there's two things to this right so if uh it's a long uh, it's a large content provider like youtube or google or google uh it's very very difficult for the any network device to see what the application is doing. Right? Mm -hmm. So sometimes it's actually impossible to see what the kids is googling or or uh, searching on YouTube. So when that happens, uh, we'll rely something like Google Safe Safe Search, uh, which is a very simple thing that provided by Google, YouTube, Bing, I think DuckDuckGo, all these different services where. Uh, you where this thing utilizes DNS to send if you if you enable that on our system uh, we divert all the searches to uh, a different uh, uh, it's not us who divert we we change that uh, the DNS address to the safe search enabled search engines right so when that happens is Google or YouTube is filtering uh, that you and that we don't I mean as far as at a network layer we don't do anything Right, because it's application filtering. So this is on the large uh, providers. And an interesting thing, we actually have adults who are turning this off, uh, turning the safe search on actually, and started sending us uh, uh, nasty things <laughs> where we're controlling all the different uh, uh, content they can see. And we keep on saying, it's not us, you shouldn't be turned on. If you're an adult, you shouldn't be do doing safe search because that actually blocks a lot of things. Uh, it's I, I think the problem that is more like people um, 
mislabeling their content. Uh, so it's mm. sometimes it's not all the adult or, or kids friendly. They just mislabel it. Uh, so the app, so this is the, the the application layer, right? So we do rely on application provided functions for them to do the filter. Um, but I like that though, Jerry, because you're building it into the the network layer, right? So even my kids go turn safe search off to go search for something. Basically, you're DNS redirecting them so that their searches always go through a safe search yeah. from the various providers. Uh, yes, exactly. So it's this awesome. is the reason, uh, you know, because we're inline, we can rewrite packet and have it to go to always go to. It doesn't matter what the kid does, right? Um, but kids are smart, by the way. I can tell you 10,000 stories, hmm. kids trying to messing around with, with controls, right? And, and uh, we have various other ways to deal with that uh, as well. Yeah, I, I, I find that, I mean, everyone parents differently, right? And we're all technologists, right? But at the end of the day, it's like, you just give me your phone, right? Like you're, you're confiscated for a while, you're in timeout, <laughs> like you don't have your phone, right? <laughs> There's always that. Yeah, that, that's the, the thing. Like I, you know, I used to work in infosec. In infosec, if something goes bad, you you tell the employee, "I'm sorry, you you're goodbye." With your kid, you can't never do that. Right, <laughs> you're stuck right. with them <laughs> because it's, it's like we keep on. We have all we all have kids. Like whenever we, we we deal with kids, it's just kind of amazing. You put a control in, they try to break it. You put in another control, they try to break it. You put another one, right? In different age of kids doing different things. I, I, I have a story where a five-year-old figure out how to unplug firewall. Right? The kid, I mean, the parents put firewall there and he figured out it's like four or five. He actually unplugged the thing, right? Mm. <laughs> it's like physical security compromise by this little kid. Anyway. Yeah, I have that problem in my house too. My son well, used I, a crowbar again. Yeah, go ahead, Lee. So I'm thinking, I mean, you, you've got a lot of stuff you're doing here. Um, how are you keeping it so that the average user understands it? I, I mean, I'm assuming you're not targeting folks that are spent their lives learning about firewalls here. Um, so we, I, I th the goal when we create this device is, is we want to create something simple but not stupid, right? It means right. we a lot of knobs in there. If you need it, you can get to it. So, for example, if you use our app, you can, um, you know, tap a device and get to the device NetFlows, right? NetFlow means like exactly source destination, port, port, uh, uh, you know, is a TCP or UDP going out to where? You can actually get to that. And if you tap on that flow, you can get even deeper information on how many bytes are getting sent out, what times is sending out, right? And what country is sending out, you can get more information even on the IP address. But right? so Jerry, on the flip side of that, I can go hit a button and say block ads and, that's, and I'm done. Right. Yes, that's on the simple side. Right. Yeah. So we provide both uh, a simple button for people. You know, like you guys, IT. You want to deal IT on your home. You say block ads, right? But because you guys are IT, you probably want other little things because block ads. What if I do this? Can I do an exception of things, right? And the upcoming software will have exceptions, right? Mm. <laughs> but you right. don't have to use exceptions. So that's the reason we call we make our box simple but not stupid, right? We still give you all the knobs you you ever wanted to do things, and we have IT, not IT, but like people who who understand Linux a little bit, dig into our box and actually providing services inside of the box. Mm. Um, it's, it's kind of interesting. So that's how we operate. It's kind of strange segment we're in, right? Yeah, but I like that though because you're appealing to both markets. Because I, I, you know, Tyler and I can speak to. Our, I don't want to speak for Tyler, but I, I mean, I'll call them out. I've used a Circle device. Uh, I've used Q Studio uh, and other services, 
And then, you know, I've also, you know, built my own PFSense firewall, right? And I, I think where I'm like, re- really where I'm at right now, especially in this conversation is, I, I love the solution you're proposing because it's somewhere in between, right? It's not that completely closed off walled garden where I have no idea what's going on if I need to troubleshoot it or I'm, I'm curious to see how it's working because I've plugged this device into my network, but it's not something that I have to spend you know, a whole bunch of time just on this one particular thing when I got a lot of things I want to accomplish in my home network, for example. Oh, oh perfect. That's exactly what we're doing. So we build this device for ourselves. Uh, think about it. If you're working in IT daily, right, you, you deal with all these different things you need to learn. It, it's a really, really, it's just annoying, right? You take this thing to the home. For example, you run a Cisco router at home with CLI. That would drive you crazy, right? Mm. You, you keep on forgetting your CLI, what are my CLI commands? Um, you know, I need to plug in a terminal thing, right, to get this thing run, running. It is powerful, right? It's nice to have a powerful thing, but the human mind can can remember limited amount of things, right? So this is the reason, you know, we're appealed to people because it's most of the stuff runs on the phone, right? You can just tap, tap and do, you know, create a VLAN network using your little phone, which is uh, quite interesting uh, uh, stuff we built, right? Sorry, Tyler, I know you wanted to chime in here. Yeah, I was, I was just curious how oh, Tyler, the... Tyler, you muted. Sorry. Say that again. Oh, Johnny's switching cables. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> He's back. <laughs> What's up, Tyler? Uh, I was I was curious if uh, if this has any uh, downsides that you've seen when when running, say, some of the mobile MDM software. Like, uh, obviously, there's the mobile app software that kind of controls a lot of the stuff on the endpoint. Uh, but I've gotten to the point where I'm actually looking at full MDM solutions and the way in which those MDMs are managed and controlled via the, the firewall and a lot of the requirements there, I'm running into some issues with some of the, the lower-end firewalls, right? Now, obviously, you go commercial-grade, and that provides you some latitude to do some more complex things. But uh, on like a regular Linksys firewall, say, for a particular VLAN, uh, that doesn't work out so well. Um, so MDM depend, it depends on what kind of control you, you, you want it. I mean, it depends on what kind of control you want MDM to, to have, right? Are you looking at MDM controlling on the network or, or is it something? Because I used to work on MDM as well for, for a year and a half. <laughs> so a little, a little bit of both. Like uh, that's one of the other things that I'm running into is uh, a lot of the devices, right, are only they're, you know, they're going to be homebound or network bound. Uh, well, other devices are going to have that, uh, that CDMA or LTE connection uh, on the cellular. So you run into uh, mm-hmm. a loss of control for particular MDMs uh, once they leave the network. Uh, whereas some of the on-prem or endpoint uh, MDM solutions or applications then can help control uh, once they leave that network, and so I'm running into a little bit of both there. And so Tyler, can it does that bypass uh, the network controls when you put MDM on it, and it creates a VPN tunnel out to the cloud sometimes, right where your MDM is? Yes. Is. Yeah. Yes, and then those applications on top of that are then leveraging something like unless you're like stripping TLS. Uh, or even if you are are looking at and inspecting TLS, uh, those connections are signed and trusted to known source or CDN or Cloudflare, CloudFront. Mm-hmm. All of these, you know, all the things that you run into as an attacker, all the things that I abuse and and leverage to get out of a network. Uh, the same thing is happening with my children and or the applications mm-hmm. that they're using. Like mm-hmm. uh, not to call out or or highlight the uh, TikTok story that's going to be, uh, I'm sure, fire for the news segment that we're going to do here in a little while, but. You know, these are these are starting to become 
real issues and security concerns, especially for some of us that work, uh, you know, maybe on classified projects mm -hmm. or highly sensitive IP projects or we're offensive, uh, right? We have access to very particular networks that uh, have sensitive information on them. And if we can't trust these apps, we have to get segmentation right. And to do that, that's becoming very difficult. So one thing you can do is actually putting a policy to tunnel traffic always to a known uh, known place, right? It means like uh, for a policy, if I remember correctly, there are policies where you start using network and the network can send the traffic back to a, a VPN tunnel, right? To always enable a VPN, which means it doesn't matter you know, what kind of media you're at, LTE or or in Starbucks, but your traffic are always forced to back going home and in your home, not home, but you know, work or 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 uh, work or home, the, the 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 VPN endpoints. In that case, you can do filtering there, right? So that's actually a simpler solution where uh, you you always send traffic back to to your uh, trusted network. Right. Yeah, con controlling the apps on the phone is. Is interesting, Jerry. Any plans to uh, provide an app on devices that uh, integrates with firewall? Um, we, I mean, if you, are, are you talking about NDMs or or something that? Yeah. Uh, so uh, having an app on the phone that can enforce policies, right? I some of the controls that we talked about uh, a year or so ago um, with Chris Hadnagy was uh, having control of the device so that you can block certain apps, allow certain apps, restrict times, but also get a log of all of the communications via chat. Uh, and again, it, this is, you, know, you parent how you want to parent. I'm not judging anyone, right? But uh, I'd like to see what my kids are chatting about because I want to look for any red flags. Is someone trying to abduct my children and things like that? And that's what Chris Hednagy has a... Uh, a nonprofit organization, Innocent Lives Foundation, that uh, helps track down those bad people. Uh, and Chris is one that recommended that you should, you know, look at some of those logs. And for that, I mean, to do that correctly, I, I think more encompassing, you need an app on the phone, uh, perhaps to do some of those controls. A a any, uh, you know, thoughts about the implementing those features for home users? So for for us, very likely we, we will not touch the, the application side, right? So if you look at uh, security, um, there's application layer security, there's networking layer security. So for us, it's more on the network side. Um, if we start touching the the, the operating set, operating system or the app side, uh, that's probably uh, you know something related to MDM or something related to uh, you know put a middleman in the in, in one of the apps, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's something we we're, we haven't done it before. We're all a bunch of networking people. Gotcha. Uh, we do stuff on the network. Um, it's possible, right? Because it, it, you, you can start unwrapping HTTPS and sniffing people's traffic. That's, you know, like uh, some of the enterprises doing. That's also possible, but that's not on our radar as well because we really hate messing with encryption, right? Mm -hmm. uh, messing with encryption is, oh, is bad. And, and that's how that's we... Uh, perceive our, our uh, us not touching encryption, you know, unless people come with a lot of money for us. <laughs> no, I that's I love your answer. It's awesome. Stay in your lane. That's fine. I love it. Yeah, I mean, having <laughs> done, on, having wait, done uh, this, is sweet. Hold on, it's okay, uh, Tyler. It's, it's okay, Doug. Then Tyler. Oh, Doug? Sorry. Oh, okay. 
So if you put so so on that layer seven thing, if do I put like a layer seven proxy service in front of firewall or do I put it behind it in the individual segments or both? I, I mean, I, I'm just sort of curious. If I want to do what Paul's talking about, yeah. the layer seven. I mean, and I, I do like that. I I, I, li- I love the network control. I love the granularity of Firewalla. But I also like the idea that you're talking about, which is very challenging. Mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, I've set those up for, for companies and schools. Mm-hmm. Very challenging thing to do. But it also well, is... Challenging is, just from a privacy policy perspective. It, it is. And so I was just... I was just really almost a technical question. Would I put that behind your device because it's... Or, or would I put it in front of it? Um, actually, is you can do it two ways. One is basically uh, strictly putting that piece of code on the phone. Okay. Right? So it's like that piece of code will be interacting with the operating system on the phone, either Android or iOS, uh, to capture things, and that's linked to the MDM as well. Because I don't think Apple will allow people to insert yeah. these things because they become a spyware. Right? Mm. So it, there's a fine demarcation of spyware versus something uh, usable for kids. So first is inserted into the, the phone itself. Second one is, is doing stuff on the network. So doing stuff on the network, because a lot of transmissions are HTTPS encrypted, um, a proxy has to be there to uh, decrypt the HTTPS and re-encrypt it, right? And to do that, you had to mess around with certificates, which means yeah, you need to put a certificate in people's phones. I think enterprise do this already, right? So mm-hmm. if you, your phone has they a do. strange certificate on it, that means like when you send stuff, you may be trusting to an intermediate proxy that decrypts your data, look at it, and re-encrypt it and send to somebody else, right? So this is the proxy uh, story. So you, where you put into Firewall, you actually, if we ever build one, it will be inside uh, the, the data path in Firewall. It will intercept HTTPS, right, the data stream, and, and use the certificate to decrypt it, right? But yet we have to in, uh, we have to insert the certif- certificate into the phone uh, or the path, uh, which means that's another MDM thing, right? So MDM will force a certificate on your phone. You accept it, then somebody in the middle can intercept the traffic, right? So there's a few things need to be done. Um, it's going to be complex for home, yeah. and and that's the reason we we said that we're we're not going to touch that stuff. Enterprise can do it because they own everything, right? Um, for us to do it, it's like we don't want to have the private key that decrypts your data. It's just, just annoying to us. I, I don't sleep well if I have encryption keys on my hands I have to deal with. Yeah, and there's performance implications for sure in that sense. Oh, lots of performance. Oh. <laughs> yes. And, uh, yeah. Decryption and encryption, it, it's, it, it's um, I think our, our box right now can do 3 gigabit. If you do encryption, decryption, go back to 100 megabit. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, but now you also have a, a VPN uh, capability in your platform. Uh, tell us what that looks like, because people are always asking about VPN. How do I get a VPN? How do I protect my traffic going out? How do I gain remote access to my network? Right, those are two different things that I think sometimes people get confused about as well. Yeah, that's why I love talking to you guys. <laughs> you understand VPN. So um, the VPN we have is exactly like you said. Is, is how do you get clean network when you're uh, you, you're outside the home, right? So first feature we have is called a VPN server. It's nothing but a VPN, open VPN server will make everything extremely simple. So if you're a Starbucks, you can always VPN back home uh, and you know anybody in the middle cannot look at your stuff, right? You can always do that. Or you're at work, you're serving, surfing to places that your work 
place don't want you to do yet, you can actually VPN back to home to do it, right? So this is more like provide a, a clean network for you to work, uh, right? So this is the, the VPN server. So a lot of our, uh, we, we know a lot of small businesses actually use this uh, because of COVID-19. Uh, they buy our little boxes and just uh, create VPN uh, server at their work, right? It's not expensive and it runs on your own network. Uh, so everything is pretty simple. And we also have another feature called the VPN client. And uh, this is more for people who want uh, to tunnel their traffic to somewhere else, right? So this is the, the, the case where most people understand what VPN is today, right? My days VPN is encryption. Today is like you're trying to watch Netflix uh, from another country or trying to uh, uh, hide your traffic from your ISPs, right? So we also have this VPN client feature where you can use your third-party VPN and we can tunnel traffic, um, you know, any device in your home through that uh, tunnel. Even that, that device can't install any VPN client. Right? So we have both features. Oh, so mm -hmm. I don't have to install a VPN client on my NVIDIA Shield, right? Yes. Uh, it, it just goes through Firewall and Firewall does the connection. Now, can I uh, tell it which traffic uh, that I want to encrypt over VPN and which ones I don't? Um, that's something we're, we're, we're not implementing now because um, consumers don't really need this feature. But on the firewall of gold, uh, eventually we're going to build the, the, the PBR, policy-based routing. So mm -hmm. simple policy-based routing, not the one. <laughs> not manual on a, a Cisco command line policy-based oh, routing. <laughs> we, we want ACLs. Come on. <laughs> we're trying to avoid that. Not, not, not the PBR that... that you know, policy-based routing, policy-based routing language. I mean, I, I remember there's actually a language for, for di uh, more complex policy, right? So we are going to build something for people to manage their traffic to VPN. So that will come to the firewall of gold, which the gold is a router, so we can do a lot more things on it. That's awesome. That's awesome. Jerry, what do you recommend for... I've gone run through the gamut, right? Like I, I can buy Cisco gear like on eBay, you know, 3,500 series switches, right? Or uh, lately I've implemented the SG series. You can go Linksys, D-Link, Netgear is kind of the, the, the tier beyond that. Uh, what do you recommend? Like what, when people come to you and say, what, what do I need in my home in terms of like switches? What, what, what's your recommendation? Um, so f switching, you don't need anything complex, right? So there's... there's the, the thing we test with the firewall of gold, for example, um, you know, it's a router feeding into a switch. And what we do is actually we use the cheapest uh, Netgear uh, or I think some TP-Link as well. And that understand VLANs, right? Mm -hmm. um, if you want into those things. Um, we also have people in our team who's into 10G networking, right? Mm -hmm. In that case, if we also get a, a cheap Netgear, cheap Linksys or... Uh, uh, what's the other one? D-Link. D-Link. Uh, God, oh, not, but not D-Link. T-P-Link. If you want to, uh, I mean, the managed switch, try to get the simplest one because uh, most people don't understand how to configure a managed switch. And if you get a Cisco one, um, you know, it's going to be extremely loud, by the way, very loud. Uh, it's very hard to configure. Um, if something broken, you, you probably need to relearn stuff. And that's something we... we yeah, that's where I'm at right now. <laughs> <laughs> I like being in that place, though. And, uh, and that's why I asked you for people, that, you know, friends and family that aren't in IT, what would, what would we recommend? Yeah, Because we yeah, tend to overcomplicate things. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, I, I agree. Uh, more questions for Jerry? Anyone? Well, I've been having fun just going through his site, looking at what's compatible and how to make it work with things like mesh and some other stuff. Looks like you, you guys had to do a lot of research to get all these configurations figured out. Uh, um, did you do that yourself, or did you use the community, or how did you how did you get all that compatibility worked out? So we we we've been around for a while. Uh, the story with us is is we tried to get in 2016. We're trying to get. Uh, uh, you know, VC money to build this company and VCs don't understand cybersecurity, right? So we actually went to crowdfunding. So we went to Kickstarter, went to Indiegogo, and this is in 2017. And later mm -hmm. we, we built uh, rest of our product both uh, through Indiegogo. So all of our products are, are built from uh, crowdfunding. And by going through crowdfunding, we have a lot of early adopters. Um, so they're willing, they, they love technology, they love the stuff we build. So they are willing to work with us to, to uh, fix all the problems we have, right? So, so you have uh, these very, very good uh, uh, customers who work with us to build this list. And you know that's why a lot of people love us because we build things and they tell us to build things. We build it for them. They tell us, what if you do it this way, right? And, and that's how our company gets started, right? is through crowdfunding, through customers, not through VCs. Mm. Something to be said for listening to your customers, right? Uh, sorry? I said something to be said for listening to your customers. Yes, <laughs> yes. We, we had to listen to them because when you go to crowdfunding, they give you ideas and, and they're your investors essentially. Mm. Right? So if we don't build stuff for our customers, it's, it, it doesn't make sense. In, in, in our company, we only listen to customers because we don't have VCs on our back. That's awesome. Uh, well, Jerry, I just have five questions, uh, which is a, a silly little thing that we do here on Security Weekly. Um, we ask you five uh, completely random questions, and we ask this of all of our guests that come on the first time. So are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Sure. Three words to describe yourself. <laughs> I, impatient, annoying, and I love technology. No, technology, annoying, and... Impatient, yeah. If you were a serial <laughs> killer, what would be your weapon of choice? Cisco picks. Mm -hmm. I don't know how the answer to that. It's uh, I, I, I don't know flamethrower. I like to play with that. Yeah, I like that. I like that. <laughs> if you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? <laughs> what would the title be? Well, I. Can I pass that because I can't think of anything? That's you, can, okay. you can phone a friend. Phone a friend. <laughs> You'll have to come back and give us the answer to that one. Jerry, in the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? What is that? What is that? It's popular in Europe. First? I don't know what it is, but first. <laughs> Jerry, choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, dead, fictional, or otherwise. Thanks, Lee. Uh... <clears throat> Let's see, celebrities. I can't think of any any celebrities. Could be people from history. Can be friends, people in cybersecurity, people not in cybersecurity. My mind is blank. You guys stop me. Test tube, baby. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> 
Jeff got it. Jerry, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I thank you for for being uh, IT with me. So I really love talking to you guys. Um, awesome. Whenever well, I say you. you understand, whenever you say I understand. Great. Thank you. <laughs> I love that we speak the same language of uh, of tech, and I tell you what, that firewall of gold. I is, know it's uh, calling uh, to it's me. Call, it's call, it is. I'm, I'm sitting here going, I should buy. Name, I should I'm, buy. Where these. has it been all my life? I know is what we're saying. Pre-order so. the gold one now. <laughs> we've been really, really working really hard to try to get shipping this thing. It's, I kind of want not, one. It, the problem with the COVID nineteen is the yeah. problem. It's, it's difficult to ship hardware, but we we're almost there. We're shipping in in seven days. Oh, it's shipping in seven days. Yeah, I'm pre-ordering it right after this. Yeah, okay. we already yeah, need that promotion code to get overnight. That's right. Oh, okay, yeah. We don't want discount. We just want overnight shipping. <laughs> we need it now. Jerry, thank you so much for appearing on Paul Security Weekly. Okay, bye-bye. Take care. With that, we'll take a short break. Come back with our next guest. Stay tuned. NetSpark are the developers of a comprehensive automated web security platform that includes web vulnerability scanning, assessment, and management. NetSparker's desktop and cloud-based security solutions employ a unique and dead-accurate vulnerability scanning engine that automatically verifies vulnerabilities and provides a proof of concept. For more information, visit them on the web at securityweekly.com forward slash NetSparker. Qualys has brought together vulnerability management and patch management, letting security teams discover vulnerabilities and apply patches immediately, all within a single, unified app. Sign up for a free trial of Qualys VMDR, vulnerability management, detection, and response today at securityweekly.com forward slash Qualys. Welcome back, everyone, to Paul's Security Weekly. This month's webcast, you're going to learn how to stitch and enrich flow data for security with Viavi Solutions. Register for our upcoming webcast or virtual trainings by going to securityweekly.com forward slash webcast forward slash on demand where you get the previously recorded ones. Ryan Hayes is here with us on this segment. He has 15 years of experience in the IT field. He's worked in a variety of capacities, currently specializing in offensive security and threat emulation techniques during his career. He's worked with a multitude of Fortune 500 and 1,000 companies, along with various U.S. government intelligence agencies on both sides of the field, offensive and defensive. Uh, Ryan, welcome to the show. Welcome yeah, back to the well, show. You were here on another show b before, right? It this was, yeah. It was, uh, I think, Enterprise Security Weekly. Yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. It's nice to have you here talking about OSINT. I said that correctly. There you this go. Time. OSINT. OSINT scraping with <laughs> Python. There's uh, probably a couple dozen projects out there that uh, is. I like bookmarked <laughs> to, do, uh, to do this thing. So, uh, and, and that's not a knock on. OSINT or Python or, or it's just awesome that uh, there's as much interest in this area in automating things in OSINT, uh, especially with Python, my current favorite language. Uh, so I'm curious to hear what you have to say. No, yeah. There, I mean, there's a ton, ton of projects out there. You can either sit there, roll your own, um, which I've seen a lot of different organizations do. Um, but I specifically have been working with Tim Tomes on Recon NG. Mm. So a lot of the modules that we've been building uh, over the last year and a half now, um, all are targeted towards, I mean, the, the whole framework is targeted towards OSINT. So, I mean, every third-party resource you can think of right now, Shodan, Binary Edge, you know, you name it, it's, it's probably out there. We have a module for it written, or if you don't, you know, submit an issue and we can work on building it. Um, or submit yeah. a pull request. <laughs> yeah, submit, submit a request. Tim is actually uh, instrumental in helping me learn Python, believe it or not. Was oh. he? Yeah. 
He's sitting next to me while I was writing a Python he, project. He, he, and I was like, he's hey, very t- specific on it. Yes. You know, he wants to make sure that you write it just right, which is good because yes. it, it retrains all of my bad habits. But <laughs> oh, <laughs> yeah. man, Paul, I'm crushed, man. I thought I was instrumental. Uh, well, you are uh, <laughs> instrumental. Uh, Tim was that weekend at Black Hat when he sat next to me while I was writing Python code. <laughs> Since then, it's pretty much been all Joff. <laughs> oh, shoot. <laughs> recovered. But Joff only teaches you about those errors that you run into when you do recursive listing, right? Right, yes. <laughs> no, Joff is encouraging uh, for a lot of reasons. So, uh, Ryan, what? so what... Um, what kinds of things uh, are you doing? Uh, so are you uh, specifically extending Recon NG or uh, are there other aspects to your, is it your project or is it add-ons to Recon NG? I, I mean, the, the project's definitely Tim's. He wrote it way, way, way back in the day. Um, probably, I couldn't even tell you when it started, but he wrote it way back in the day. I've kind of just jumped on the project in the last year and a half and kind of been hel- helping him work on that, build that up, upgrade it and get it to you know where it's at today. Um, I don't know if you've used it back in the day. It was I definitely did. very hard, had a huge learning curve. And so now it's quite easier to use. And so awesome. that's really nice. Uh, what what kinds of, for those folks that have not used Recon NG, uh, Ryan, what, 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 what can you expect uh, today? And maybe some people used it back in the day and, and want to know what to expect. Yes. I mean, so we, we have modules that kind of spread all the basic OSINTs that you're going to do. You want to look up a company name? Yeah, we have modules for that. So you can hit up. Um, if you want to look, say, for instance, you want to take an organization um, like Pulse Security Weekly, and we want to find all of the DNS records that happen for it. We have third-party we have third party resources that we have modules coded for that hit APIs. Um, I mean, so there's a lot of, a lot of hoops you got to jump through with some of the resources that don't have APIs, but um, we've, been, we've been working on those. <laughs> but the ones with APIs, you, you know, we can go with just a, a company name and go from there and say, okay, give me all the DNS records from XYZ third-party, and we'll get... We'll, you know, we'll start building that that list from there, and then you pivot from building a, a list of DNS records to all right. Let's get the IP addresses. Let's get the ports from Shodan, uh, that kind of thing. So it kind of steps you through that full recon reconnaissance phase that you're going to do on any kind of pen testing engagement or Ryan, red team I, or really anything. I, I want to go back and, and dig into some of the technical details uh, here. You know, since we were talking about Python during the break, uh, and you said something about a- APIs can be somewhat limiting, in for I guess why is that, and then what are the alternatives? Like, well, thank God someone invented beautiful soup for one. <laughs> yeah, I, so I wouldn't say the APIs are necessarily limiting. It's it's the services, the third party resources that aren't offering API resources. Mm. Um, so th- there's some services out there that are just uh, you know just provide a straight web page service for you that you can go and look up stuff. So when we have to code something up that scrapes that, and they change their code in six months or mm-hmm. two months or two weeks. You know, we got to go back and we got to change our code. And um, is it right? Is it largely? Um, is it largely beautiful soup? And how are you dealing with the DOM? Are you using a Chromium or Selenium or like what? what yes, hoops all you of that. Through? All of that. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it, yeah. It, it depends on the resource. So we, we mm-hmm. have modules already built in, so it makes it really easy for developers that are coming in and just writing a module. Mm. We have all the backend code already built for beautiful soup or for Selenium for things like that to reach out to the web page and kind of interact with it the proper way. Um, so you just have to build out a resource and say, okay, I want to hit this resource and I want to pull out this data and kind of like a regex type thing. You give it that and you're like, okay, cool. I'll pull out this data and I'll insert it into the database. What's nice about using a framework for the reconnaissance phase is you have everything into a database. You can easily correlate information, um, go back and search it super easy instead of having to go back to notes. Mm. But now APIs can be limiting in that 
uh, well, first you have to go get a key, uh, or, you know, a client <laughs> secret, uh, you know, usually a token in a secret, right? Uh, or some such combination. But then they can use that to track and limit you further, which is uh, anyone that's coded to an API, especially a public one, knows that uh, once that you've authenticated to them, they're in complete control over how many requests you can make mm -hmm. in a certain time limit, and then you have to code around that. And I'm sure you folks have to deal with that regularly too. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's limiting factors of, you know, you can only make 10 requests a second, those kind of things. You got to get keys, paid for keys, paid for resources. So we've kind of coded out modules that, you know, we'll utilize both of the services. If there's a free API key or if there's a paid for API key, it allows you to extend the framework either way and makes it really easy. That's awesome. That's awesome. Um, so what kind of uh, feeds are you uh, integrating with? Um, so Shodan, Binary Edge, Hoxie, uh, um, find subdomains, basically any of the tool sets you find out there right now that you would use for reconnaissance, you know, AMAS or uh, ah, crap, find subdomains. Uh, there's, you know, I don't know. There's a half dozen other ones anyways. So all of those things that are, are, are interacting with those resources, we've already got modules for them. And then what we do is, you know, we allow you to hit which ones that you want to hit, or you can code out what we call resource scripts that'll just do it auto automatically for you. And that way, you know, if you have a repeatable process, a methodology that you've already put in place, okay, run these five steps for our domains or for our, our hosts or our IP ranges, whatever it might be. Mm. So it uh, allows you to code out th those methodologies in place. So it allows me to automate, like how, do I have to code the automation or is it? I wouldn't even call it coding really. It's, mm -hmm. it's just kind of a step-by-step -step, run this with this parameter, run this with this parameter. It's almost like a, a, a shell script. Mm, okay. That's awesome. So does, does that kind of combat some of the issues that you're running into when um, companies like say LinkedIn? So mm -hmm. one of the things that all of our LinkedIn scrapers, those are updated probably monthly because they change <laughs> yeah, every their API endpoint or you know where they store or shove stuff or how they obfuscate like it's it's a mess right like is that kind of the idea behind some of that that scripting pieces it, i mean it's the idea behind it yes um that that way the modules can easily get updated to to overcome some of those complications that we have um i i would say specifically with linkedin what i found you know easiest to work with is um you know just using google custom search search uh, engines it's about the only way to do it anymore, right? Right now, if you want accurate data, yes. I, at LinkedIn's locked down not even just their API, but their you know, the ability to scrape it so much that that's oh, yeah. exactly what I what I get is you go to Google and you see what Google's indexed from LinkedIn. Yep, yeah, and I found that the most accurate and the, the easiest to use as as well. Yeah, it all it also helps with that uh, not having to maintain those personas and, and make those multiple connections and those personas get burned based on you know whatever connection you're making. So it's that's yep. a better way. <laughs> yep, definitely. Yeah, like even like right down to the image that you're using too, right? Like trying to find a clean image today that hasn't been used somewhere else. Are they looking for stuff like that? I wouldn't put it past LinkedIn to do something like that. I wouldn't put it past them. I haven't seen that yet, but I mean, you know. All the all the tricks to get around reverse in image searching, where you know you flip it to the mirror side or you invert colors or whatnot. I mean, a lot of that, yeah, you, they're they're detecting that stuff now, right? Or it's just easy to easy to catch on to. Ryan, what if if someone's just starting using Recon NG? What are some of the free API keys that you recommend that they go get first, um, as to not get frustrated, right? Because I think a lot of people will go, oh, cool, like Recon NG, like it's a whole framework, but 
in order for me to like really do stuff with it, I need a lot of basically free API keys just to kind of get up and running. What what are those and what, what should we yeah. do like in prep, right? Yeah, so I, I would say the majority of the services all offer at least a free solution mm-hmm. that will get you going. Um, you know, Google and Bing all have free API keys. We have modules that are interfaced with those to kind of scrape either domains or IPs or contacts or credentials. Um, one of the nice ones that we, we've kind of worked with, um, Hyperion Gray, I don't know if you've heard of him on Twitter. Um, he has a database called Scala that basically has compiled all of the latest data dumps. And mm-hmm. so you can search a domain, you know, securityweekly.com and go look and if there's any data dump that happened with those domains, you can pull down credentials from them. Um, so that's one that's completely free. And we've kind of worked with him to, to give us access within Recon NG for, for any users of it. So that's a nice one. Um, Shodan has free stuff. Uh, it's also extremely cheap, especially if you catch it on Black Friday, mm-hmm. like 10 bucks. You can get you can get an API key that'll give you a limited access. That's awesome. Uh uh, and I think also a word of caution, when you're registering for these API keys, it's probably in your best interest to have different accounts from your like normal personal ones or ones that are uh, in your kind of business operations. You want to create separate accounts. Those accounts go get the API keys because if you do trigger something that causes them to delete your account, which they can do, they don't really need a reason. They just Their terms of service let them basically do whatever they want as far as I can tell. Uh, you want separate accounts for those, right? Separate Gmail, Google accounts. Se- right? Separate email accounts. You usually want to run your your kind of reconnaissance scripts from like a VPS in the cloud someplace, you know, DigitalOcean or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. That way you don't get blacklisted from your home account. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, yeah. And, and is, it, there a, is there proxying capability uh, into ReconNG and what does that look like? We don't currently have proxying capabilities that I'm aware of. Mm. Um but we do have different capabilities. For, so, for instance, say you pull down a bunch of domain names, you want to resolve them. So, you, you know, you can swap out DNS resolvers so that, it, you know, you can point at direct, you know, authoritative name servers. Or if you want to use something like Cloudflare or Google DNS to kind of just check what those, those would come back as to kind of remain a, a, on a passive side of the house or on an active side of the house for, for your reconnaissance. Mm. Tyler, anyone? Questions? Tyler, this is your wheelhouse. <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so, I mean, um, uh, so from you know, from a recon ng standpoint, like the ability, are, I'm assuming like all this has been ported over to Python three. The API and yep. my modular scripting piece is super nice. Uh, the ability to kind of custom code some stuff in that and and expand out the framework uh, for both private as well as maybe contributing back a community version uh, is that all part of this the framework now too. Yeah, so there's a full wiki, a development guide on the wiki to kind of get you up and running. I know back when I started, uh, you know, a year and a half or so ago, I, I just kind of looked at it. I was like, okay, let me take this showdown module and I want to build one for, uh, you know, one of these other services. And it, you know, it took me 10, 20 minutes to kind of look over everything and, okay, this is cool. I understand how all this works. It's pretty straightforward in the way it, you know, we, we process data and interact with everything. That's awesome. And, and as far as like some of the, the new cloud stuff, so like S3 Bucket where you're using like Grey Hat Warfare or uh, some of the, the other Python modules for the cloud piece, is that kind of all being integrated as well? So we don't have anything with the cloud yet uh, or, or for the S3 Buckets specifically yet, but um, it's definitely a, a, one of the modules on my list. Um, I would say Recon NG has been primarily focused in the passive state of, re- of Recon uh, previously, and we're kind of 
kind of shifting now that we have a marketplace of modules where anybody can, can kind of submit them um, into kind of just a free-for-all of, you know, if you want to do active state or, or, or uh, passive state of reconnaissance, your module can do anything. So are those modules, like for the community, are those being like all stored in a, like as part of like the framework and searchable or is it kind of a hodgepodge? Like you can make your own module. There may be some GitHubs out there. Sim similar to like Cobalt Strike's CNAs, mm -hmm. right? Like there's a million of them. There's not really a central place that everybody goes and looks for a single you know, recon NG module, is there? I mean, you could do yes and no. <laughs> it could be both ways. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there is a central repository. So if you look on GitHub, it's a uh, recon-ng-marketplace. So that's a central repository. You can submit a PR for a new module uh, uh, if, if you have one, and then that'll get indexed and pulled in. And then with within the framework, when utilizing it, you can do like marketplace search, and I, I want something for Amazon or for Shodan or for Binary Edge or whatever it might be, and you'll get all the modules that, that would fit in that category or for, for that search term. That's awesome. Uh, Intel X, uh, any of the Bellingcat stuff? Intel X is actually of... one that I was just working on earlier today, so it, <laughs> it will be coming in here shortly. That's awesome. And uh, those API keys as well, like where they've kind of moved some of those tools to the free stuff and then they've got their paid version. Uh, can you integrate the paid part uh, into the framework as part of like a private script? Yeah. So w what we do is we have uh, basically options. So usually mo what we've seen, at least on, on most of the modules that I've worked on, is usually API endpoints are all the same, right? It's, so you have a key and you have a limitation of like the amount of requests that you can you can make, you know, 10, 100, whatever it might be. And so we have options in there that we, that you can set within the module to say, hey, I, I'm only using a free key. I can only pull 10. So pull only 10. That way you don't trigger an alert. You can still get the records that you want and stay within your limitations. That's awesome. And so um, the, all, all that stuff's configurable again for modules that's, you know, you can only you can only send 15 requests per second, whatever whatever those limitations might be of, of the uh, frameworks or, or from the, the resource, you can set all those within, within the module and it's all configurable at runtime. Oh, less code for me to write, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty sweet. Now, where does uh, where's everybody kind of uh, is there a Slack channel? Where's everyone kind of collaborating? Yeah, on so, so we, yeah, projects? there's a Recon NG Slack channel that you can hit up. Um, again, the the GitHub Wiki has all of this information on it, um, and I'm usually in the the Slack channel. Tim's in there, and we kind of you know help troubleshoot, help build modules, you know whatever you know any kind of problems people have with the product. That's awesome. Have you guys uh, worked much with any of the like? Uh, reverse hash lookups, NTLM hash lookups, data breach, uh, cred sets, uh, are, are some of those online uh, databases being integrated as well? So some of them, um, like I said, we, we have the one with uh, ScaleUp, uh, Have I Been Pwned, we have lookups for those. Um, those are the two main ones that I can think of at the moment. Um, that's but a if there's big, other resources that you know, we could mm -hmm. easily kind of switch out other ones as well. I mean, uh, you know, as I said, the modules are pretty quick to throw together. If there's a new resource that pops up tomorrow, I mean, it would take just minutes to pop a new one in. Sweet, and most of that's being collaborated on uh, via the, the Slack channel? Via the Slack channel, yeah. Sweet, man. That's awesome. That's uh, some. That's exciting to, to hear that that's kind of being updated and it's much more modular. That makes a, a nice place to kind of bring a lot of tools and disparate things together. <laughs> that, sounds, that was one of the like things a, I liked. Sounds like it Sorry, should be called Recon NG NG. Uh, so, Joff. Did you have questions? Oh, no, I, I don't. I know a lot about Recon NG. I worked with Tim in the early days with it um, at Black Hills. And, um, you know, it, it had solid foundations then. Mm. 
Uh, Tim's major rewrite of the command syntax drove me crazy. Uh, love you, Tim, <laughs> but uh, that that really uh, and that's probably one of the pet peeves a lot of people have. But it is. Uh, to it's, be it's honest, uh, the marketplace left. idea needed to exist uh, because um, you know the, the prepackaging the modules all all together with the with the framework was a was a bit of a challenge. Uh, especially for uh, things like Kali, uh, um, you know, the distributions. So, no, I've I've programmed uh, Recon NG modules before several times. Worked with Tim a little bit uh, uh, in the past, and uh, you know, I think uh, I I think Recon NG is a solid framework. It's a well-architected uh, class hierarchy. It it, it is um, easy to bring up a module uh, in Recon NG just by sort of copying a, a template and and just going for it and um, no, it's uh, it's solid. Uh, I think one of the one of the challenges that I recall, and I think still is a challenge, uh, is is you know maintenance of API keys. Uh, they're in a database, sure, uh, it's great, um, but uh, you, you know when you when you're dealing with a framework that's that's OSINT to so many different APIs, uh, something will break. Um, and uh, I'm pretty sure that uh, you guys are still suffering from that challenge where, oh, yeah. you know, you just have one API that changes and it, and, and it will break uh, parts of the framework, which is, which is painful, but uh, that's just a, the maintenance issue. But overall, that's not a detractor. I think Recon, uh, Recon NG is, is uh, a really nice framework for, uh, for doing OSINT in. Ryan, uh, speaking of API keys, how are you protecting those API keys when you store them in the database? Oh wow! I don't know what you're talking about. Next question. <laughs> These are not the API keys you're cool. looking for. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'll, 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 I mean, I'll, I'll just be honest. I mean, it's it's a SQL-like database sitting on the you know the file system. So I mean, protect your OS. <laughs> mm. Make sure make sure you have the right credentials. Um, but yeah, I you know what I what I one thing I I will tell you what I really liked uh, was when Tim introduced the the threading uh, into the framework. Uh, because originally it was single threaded, and uh, that was uh, that was a limiting factor for some of the uh, the bigger queries you want to do. Let's say you wanted to reverse resolve, you know, a couple of class Bs or something. You know, yeah. single threaded was was painful. Um, I, I will tell you right now, um, I still use Recon NG, uh, even occasionally on internal network tests uh, for doing exactly what I just referred to actually taking a class b or a couple of class b's and just reverse resolving and see what the internal dns structure gives me and recon ng makes that really easy task yeah. uh, so we're at, the threading's nice right it's super nice yeah. but we're actually working on a new new feature for it um so that we can actually run concurrent modules so you want to run one to reserve reverse resolve some stuff and then at the same time i also want to start hitting shodan to to start looking up new dns records or or whatever it might be uh even even better that, right that would I be mean, nice too that's gonna be i nice. go uh, multi-process uh, multi-thread yeah super nice um but yeah tim put a lot of thought into it uh the the project's matured nicely uh and it's really great that he's got extra help now uh because you know with, with uh, uh black hills uh kind of separated from that uh, a little bit over time, so uh, that's really cool, man. I I like to see the progress. It's it's really great stuff. Doctor Doug, yeah, I I had a less technical question. I, I get calls about this stuff all the time in terms of 
uh, companies that are start they hear a lot of marketing stuff about Intel and 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 OSINT scraping and things like that, and they want to they want to do that kind of thing in relation to their organization. Is is this product? I haven't used it, so is this product mature enough that that you could start recommending it to uh, to clients in that regard? I mean, that they could start using this, or is it something that requires a lot of development and developers to actually put in place? I mean, I would say it's it's probably not going to be super developer intensive. Um, depend, I guess, depending on the usage and and you know the the outcome that you want. Uh, if you're looking for things that are kind of already built and and what we have, yeah, I mean, you could definitely go in and use it. I I just actually was working with a customer just the other week. We were working on specifically just recon information, and I was able to do a lot of the work up front, hand them over a database, and be like, okay, cool. Look at Recon NG. Here's your database. Load it in, and you guys can move forward with this, you know, for the rest of time or however long that right. you want to go with it. Well, that, that sounds good. I, I mean, that that was kind of what I was thinking about because one of the problems, at least people that call me have, is they're interested in this stuff. They read about this stuff, and then they they talk to somebody, and they get quoted these just astronomical prices. Yeah, you on need them. the enterprise killer feature, which is begs the next question: Can I export my results to a CSV file? Of course, we have that. Yeah, there you, you go. Import That's the only enterprise feature you need. You support Excel. You're good to go. A CSV <laughs> file and a print Excel, button. Excel, CSV, good to go. lists. Um, I so, think there's PDF so if in I'm there not, now. If, nice. if I'm not mistaken, though, uh, Recon NG is still very much a command line tool. Um, it is so you know you you're using well, yes it's no. not like you're going to be click clicking no, into no, a I mean that that's fine I, it was just more of the sense of I wasn't sure how far along that I mean if it's a command line tool that's fine it's command lines I just well, didn't know wait, how wait, developed it was so, Ryan that's so a question wait, hold on it, it is a command line tool primarily but there is also a web interface so is there oh, any there but is, is there I was going to ask that question is there Sorry. a rest <laughs> api where I can write a python script that says I want to run these six different queries with these modules and yes, you can. Okay. That was, yeah, so that there's, was a, there's a REST API that you can interact with, um, and there's also just a web interface if you just want to you know, log in and interact with it that way as well. You right. can. So, yeah, that's, I'm, that's I'm assuming your web interface uses the REST API. So That's great. Yeah, uh, that's, yeah. It, it, it's definitely not as mature as the command line interface. It's still a work in yeah. progress, but it, it does exist, and it is functional. That's a good move. I like that. Yeah. Well, that, that brings up an interesting uh, use case that Doug is talking about, right? So I spin something up in the cloud. I put recon on G on it. I write my own script that <laughs> runs basically the recon for my yep. organization. Yep. I want to know my IP addresses, my domain names, my yep. email addresses, you know, all the, the nice information. And I mean, you could almost build your own. I mean, it's a great no, open source competitor to the attack surface management Mm -hmm. uh, commercial vendors that are out there. I mean, yeah. this was just it was literally for people that they have the skills to, to work yeah. in that model. They just don't have the money to hire a, a big-time Intel firm, and they're looking for tools right. like this. And I don't could, want to write it all myself from scratch. Right, and that's yeah. that's more what I was getting at about yeah. maturity was, was if there's modules built and there's pieces to pull together – they, I mean that you know people people have that skill set. They just don't want to build the whole thing from scratch. Mm. So it sounds like a lot of the work has been done, but they can't afford to go hire a you know SEAL Team Six to go investigate the thing. Either, right, so. right, right. No, I mean it's we've made it quite easy. Where to a point where you can you can spin up a droplet in you know DigitalOcean, mm -hmm. download the tool, and drop just what we call resource files on on the host in, okay. inside your your home directory, and it will start running every. You know, module that you want run against you know whatever resource you have. Domain, those, IT, those resource networks. files, Ryan, those contain my API keys. So, 
They could, um, but the the resource files are normally just commands. So mm -hmm. I want to run okay. this module, this command, run, and it's just you know one command per line. You know, right. just kind of it it runs down a checklist. So they can supply the API keys in that file, or you could be more creative and preload those some more in safer a, way. So yeah. everything's yeah. stored in a SQL-like database, so you can mm -hmm. just drop a SQL-like database of keys right right there with the the install. Gotcha. Have you guys considered having uh, or uh, integrating with some kind of vault to store some of those keys? Because, I, I mean, the free key is like I, whatever. I mean, that doesn't really you know, bother me, right? But if I've got a set of API keys that I paid some money for, I want to protect those because if someone steals them, you know, there go my yeah. keys out the door. Have you considered implementing a vault like a HashiCorp or something like that? It's something that, that we've talked about, and it's just it's, it's one of those things that it, it's on the list of – you know, half a dozen other, other right, things. Right, right. It's a huge pain in the on. ass. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've read about it extensively and determined it's a huge pain in the ass, and I'm in the same boat as you with my software. It's on the list, right? Yeah, it's, <laughs> it's, on, it's on the list. And we, we kind of, the way we've looked at it right now, and that's why it's not kind of more of a high priority, is, mm. is nine times out of 10, usually you can go in and be like, oh, this one's compromised, regenerate, and just right. dispose of keys. Yep. Uh, Jeff. Question from the Discord server. Mm. Is it as easy to use as AMAS or Spiderfoot? Yep, both. Actually, I, I might even say easier. But so what? Go ahead. Basically, this yeah, basically the same thing you're going to do with AMAS, you can do inside a recon ng. It would just kind of be different modules. And the reason that we do that is so that you can split it up and do it the way you want to do it. So you might run AMAS and point out a domain and get you know net blocks and get IPs and get reverse DNS. Well, that's going to be three different modules inside a recon ng. It's going to be just as easy. You're just going to have to run three different modules, mm. but it's you know three commands. Hmm. Uh, I I'm a a fan of uh, Skip Tracer. Oh. I know Skip Tracer has some license plate thing in there. What's what's the thoughts on the panel on? And, and Will's awesome, by the way. I think he's great. Love you, Will. Is there a lot of overlap between the between the two frameworks? I mean, it sounds like some of the some of the modules do have overlap. I'll tell you, I haven't used Skip Tracer in a while, mm. so I couldn't even tell you what the huge overlap. I know there is a lot of overlap there. I couldn't tell you the specifics on it though. Tyler, a minute. I would say there's a little bit of overlap there, but <clears throat> kind of they're looking at some of the some different things, uh, more kind of hunting and targeting versus say OSINT looking for specific like uh, email or, or data breach mm. passwords, right? Like if you're hunting a particular person, you're looking at you know, date of birth, uh, name, last location, maybe off of a phone number or an email address. So yeah, some of those could overlap. Um, however, kind of two, two different purposes for, uh, for the tool in and of itself. At least the last yeah. time I used it. So, so based on the, that example that you're talking about, like we, we would not get into like looking for phone numbers for a user. So you can take a username and, or maybe just a name in general. And we can we have API keys for like name check if you wanted to like look for somebody's username across all, all of uh, the different services that they offer, which I think it's like 100 some odd or whatever. Um, so you could do that and then like, okay, now we'll take that and we'll, we'll look up their GitHub and, and pull projects from the GitHub and, and things. Yeah, that kind of stuff. Sounds like a neat little integration could happen too, if you want to specifically target a user. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of what we've been working on is trying to figure out how to how to integrate these mass uh, databases and tools and do cross correlation and relationships, and that's where you end up with 
uh, all these tools are great at like pulling in a mass amount of data and kind of looking at the things that are, are available via public or via API, but then utilizing those in, in mass quantity in order to build kind of a picture or do analytics or build relationships against uh, different data sets and or data uh, relationship points. Uh, that's, that's where something like you end up using something like Multigo or King and Union, yep. uh, Analyst Notebook, you're trying to bring in all of these disparate uh, data sets and, and data correlation pieces and then try and build some sort of a picture with them. And I, and I think that's the, uh, the huge challenge here, right? It's not so much technical in even finding the, the resources, even uh, working with and interfacing, writing Python scripts against those resources, right? It's how do I create my own journey? What's, what's my process? Like what is my ultimate goal, right? And then backing off of that, what are my objectives? And then how do I build a tool chain, almost like a CICD pipeline, right? Of how <laughs> I complete all those objectives to get to my goal to what's, what, what's, what's the end goal? What's the end answer? I want to know all this information about a company, essentially so I can pwn them, right? Maybe I yep. want to know information about an individual to prove whether they're a criminal or not, or associate them with some type of criminal activity and investigation as an example, right? How do I string all these things together? Uh, how do I figure out what all the resources are and then string all the techniques? And I mean, I, I've, it's like PI work. You have to mm -hmm. try to figure out, except it's, it's PI work starting from, I'm going to look at every traffic camera in the United States. Yeah. And, and it's like, how do you filter down? This is the problem I face with this kind of stuff in PI work was mm -hmm. how do you filter down the... 8,000 hits on Doug White that are not related to the person you're looking at or, you know, all the stuff you just don't even need to see. And, and that's a, a real mm. challenge to me in this kind of thing because you do tend to get this massive quantity of data. Mm. Sorry, Ryan, did you want to weigh in on that? I'm sorry. That's okay. No, I, so I, I, I think actually what Recon and G, one of the pieces that you guys are talking about that we're missing is, is kind of being able to do data analytics, right? So we can collect all this data tons of it, but it's still going to require an, an analytic mindset to kind, kind of come in and look at it and, and decipher it. Mm. So we collect it all, but, you know, still some of the data analytics we might be missing where you might that's, need either another tool set or just a, a, a human. Yeah, that's, that's one of the things. That's why OSINT is kind of an interesting area. Yeah, we've all done OSINT as part of, like, uh, offensive engagements. It's all, like, you know, before we start, that's what we do. It's something we've always done. But the analytical side of that and being able to correlate, build relations, build pictures, and do uh, much more interesting things has always relied on the human. And regardless of what anybody says, I've yet to see a product that takes the human out of that and replaces them with a tool. Still up uh, to the human to tell the to story, do. right? Oh, yep. I, 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 yeah, you're going to be hard up to find a product that can actually yeah. do that. I mean, it's going to be extremely hard. Mm. I think when we do shift to... Like I have uh, a company that I'm targeting or I'm trying to protect my own company and I want to automate the attacks, you know, the discovery of the attack surface. I think that's something that we, we can, you know, write, write a story, have objectives and, and a goal to collect that pertinent information uh, about that. And I think having an open source framework like Recon NG uh, and others to do that is, is exciting uh, uh, for me. You know, AMAS being one of the tools that I've used in the past for that. Now I want to spin up Recon NG and see if I can accomplish that that same thing. Yeah, I, I definitely. If you can't, I'd be very surprised. But yeah, you should be able to accomplish all that. And what, what's nice is you can you can do some of the analytics. But again, it's going to take your human human side. Is you can do 
tracking analytics that you the same stuff you would do in AMAS where, hey, I saw this two weeks ago. Now I'm seeing this new one or these mm-hmm. new IPs or these new domains. And you could definitely would pop up to the top. It's mm. awesome. Cool stuff. Any other questions for Ryan? Outstanding. Ryan, you haven't answered five questions yet. You can answer five <laughs> oh, questions. Oh, yeah. That's the <laughs> questions we got for Ryan. That's it. Right. Ryan, are you ready to play five questions with Security Weekly? Let's do it. Three words to describe yourself. Uh, passionate, nerdy, and hilarious, maybe. If you were a serial killer, what would be your weapon of choice? I'd go with a keyboard, wanted style, just smashing people's heads in. If you wrote a book about yourself, what would the title be? Hey, y'all, watch this. In the popular game of Ask Grabby Grabby, do you prefer to go first or second? Always first. Choose two celebrities to be your parents. Alive, Alive dead, fictional, or otherwise. Um, I'm going to have to go back. Just got to keep it within the hacker side is Johnny Lee Miller and Angelina Jolie. Oh, nicely done. Oh, yeah, got Angelina. Beautiful. <laughs> Bingo. Most popular mom answer. They were married in real, in real life for a short time. I guess you can't be married to Angelina for a longer than a short time. <laughs> Apparently. It's a thing. But she'll always be your mom. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Wow. Ryan, thank you so much for appearing Appreciate on Paul Security Weekly. Thanks, guys. With that, uh, we will take a short break. Come back with security news for this week. Stay tuned. Elastic Security empowers security teams everywhere to prevent, detect, and respond to threats quickly through a unified solution. And it's free and open, putting you in control. Use Elastic Security to eliminate blind spots by analyzing all of your data, no matter its volume, format, or age. Stop threats at scale with automated threat and anomaly detection. And arm every analyst with fast search and integrated case management. Download or try Elastic Sim for free and experience the benefits of an open security solution backed by world-class security research at securityweekly.com forward slash elastic. The question is simple. Have any of the systems on my network been compromised? The answer is harder than it should be. Enter AI Hunter. Active Countermeasures has automated and streamlined techniques used by the best pen testers and threat hunters in the industry to create AI Hunter, a network threat hunting solution that does the first pass of a hunt for you to identify systems that are most likely to be compromised and scores the results on a scale from 0 to 100. You can then research those systems in depth with AI Hunter. Focus your valuable time on the systems that need your expertise with AI Hunter. Sign up for a personal demo today at securityweekly.com forward slash ACF. Welcome back everyone to Paul's Security Weekly. Join the Security Weekly mailing list for webcast virtual training announcements and receive your personal invite to our Discord server by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash subscribe, clicking the join button. We're also looking for high quality guest suggestions for all of our podcasts. Submit your suggestions for guests by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash guests and completing the form. We review those monthly, sometimes more frequently. I suppose we should start by talking about TikTok. Is that where? I, everybody's on that, yeah. This this article is garnering a lot of uh, uh, attention. I My first it question is. for the panel is... Uh, I don't believe anything I read on the internet, but are you guys believe? <laughs> has anyone co- like 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 researched this and can say that it's true, or talk to known trusted people outside of what we read on the internet to say that 
TikTok is at least doing some of the things that are laid claim in this article? I have no idea. I got to be honest. I mean, I don't think anybody's been able to prove that. I mean, they. I mean, every time that comes up, TikTok denies it. Mm-hmm. But it is in China. It's controlled by China, and I mean, it, it makes sense. So, regardless of whether it was written on the internet or not, it it, it makes sense that they could be pressured into. It doesn't make. I mean, just because it makes sense doesn't mean I ran naked through the streets. Well. <laughs> Even but but that did, did happen on, on more than one occasion. And <laughs> get the ring security camera footage to prove it. Is what oh, I'm saying. Oh, I, I That's what the, I'm saying. I got that shit, man. <laughs> it's it's on an SD card <laughs> under one place in that place one time. One place in that other thing. Speaking of Vegas, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> ran, and he was holding a Mexican cocktail at the same yes. time. <laughs> I think by next week, uh, next week there will be some more definitive answers around. Uh, certain claims and or we will see some code pushes to TikTok. So whether they did intentionally or did not, that's going to be kind of the interesting piece. Um, We've said it before, though, like if you are China uh, and you are in this for a long, long haul, you know, the 100-year war, we're still in that that Western mindset of a short-term battle, you know, we can barely think past the year. So if if I was going to do it and I was doing a 100-year war – why would you not stand up a whole company, yep. make a very popular app? I don't think they maybe intentionally knew it was going to be as popular as it was. That's pretty hard to you know set up and do that. Otherwise, it would be billions of billion-dollar companies. But the fact that they had some of that built in and have the force, you know, the permissions and the forethought to have that capability with inside of that app, I don't think it's outside of the the realm of possibility that either their code is tainted and or you know China is forcing or doing at will things to that code, uh, but whether or not that was all part of the big long term strategy, I think that's yet to be determined, and maybe we won't know that. Uh, and hopefully within the next week or so, we'll have some more definitive answers rather than just someone purporting what they see and you know we don't really understand their level of knowledge and, and how they did their testing and uh, how that's and, co- co- cooperated, right? Like, that's a that's a that's something to be determined still. And, and just understand that inside of Chinese companies, there is a political officer. Mm-hmm. Uh, half the people running – I mean, I, I have actually worked inside of a Chinese company in China mm-hmm. uh, for a week once, and, you know, there was a person who worked there, and when the incident came up, that person changed into his – uh, People's Liberation Army uniform with his officer epaulets and went out and and basically got a military unit to go take action as a result of them finding the name of the person who hacked this site. Mm-hmm. And so I think there's so much interrelationship between the government, the military, and all the people who are actually running things because you cannot get to the level of I'm running a company mm-hmm. without heavy interaction with the government, with the party, with the military. Because if you don't, you're not going to get anywhere. You won't get the permits. You won't even be able to open a, open a shop. So Yeah, and, and, and so you and, won't have a successful business without exactly. having right. that. And, I mean, uh, and again, all of this is circumstantial. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> we haven't reverse engineered the app and have you know the yeah. screenshots to, to prove it. Tyler's like, yeah, but we know you have, Tyler. I mean, come on now. <laughs> 
But well, I mean, man, t- Tyler's comment about like, the hundred-year war. I would call it the thousand-year war. Mm. I mean, I mean, I think China. Uh, it's a Chinese tendency to think in a very long, big-picture concept, which is hard for Americans sometimes to process. I used to do consulting for companies that want to do business in China, and you just have to understand that. Uh, I don't know why they wouldn't do what what people are accusing them of. I mean, I mean, take every app and make sure that the capability when you need it is yeah. available there. And it's very doable inside of China. It, it's easy for them to do that. I, it may, I, I honestly, if, if the United States could do that easily and not get caught or there was no consequence to getting caught, they would be doing it too. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, if, if, they oh. could, if the United States could go to Facebook and say, you know, you don't have a choice here. You want to keep operating? You're going to make sure that, that we have this capability. Uh, we, they would be doing it too. And so would uh, everybody I, else. I think you have to add to that sentence, that we know of. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> Doug. <laughs> that we know of. I mean, I'm, I'm giving everybody the benefit of the doubt based on the law here, but in China, that is not the case, and they can do it, and they can come in to your business and say, or just make a call to the CEO, who happens to also be a captain in the People's Liberation Army and a party member in the local autonomous region, and say, here's what you're going to do. And they're not going to say, Pressure. I'm not going to do that. They're going to say, okay, yes, sir. It, uh, Pressure it, versus more insidious than that. The, the, the thing the way I look at it is when it comes to a, a, a pro, given product you got to look at who's making it and who who's influencing it I mean even if it's an American par, uh, company who's sitting on the board who controls yeah. where they're going are they bringing in sensitive country foreign nationals who are not loyal to the US to do do nefarious things I mean it's I know it's a it can be a deep hole you go down when you're going there but you got to look at it because it's not necessarily all in China or all in Russia or wherever. It's, you know, you got to look at who's involved where. Yeah. Because we, we never bring in, like, uh, hostile foreign nationals to work on uh, classified projects, right, Lee? Oh, never. No, never. We, we built those rockets. We built those rockets all by ourselves. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we, we never leveraged patriots. No, no, no. <clears throat> One could say that also goes in reverse. Mein's Führer! I can walk! Mm. Nobody got that. Uh, but <laughs> so I, there's a lot of interesting things in this article uh, that Lee links to uh, in his stories. Um, even if you believe that only half of it is true, mm-hmm. <laughs> I think it's still a reason not to have TikTok on any of your devices. Uh, yeah. But the bigger the bigger question here is now how how do you push that down to say family members or. Uh, your 11-year-old or 16-year-old daughter, your grandma, your mom, like how do you have these conversations, making making it meaningful to them, showing risk to them, and having them want to not have that capability on their phone? Because let's be real, like there's 5 billion people that read that in the last, you know, 24 hours, and I bet there's probably less than 2% of them have uninstalled that app. The The answer is surprisingly simple, Tyler. You tell your children's friends what's going on with TikTok, and then your children will believe their friends over what you say, even though what we do in our careers and have all of us Genius. for over 20 years. Classic psyops right there. Classic right? Psyops. Our children are not going to believe what we say. No way. Right? I've told my children to remove TikTok months ago. Uh, last last year, last year when we covered the story where the U.S. military, uh, and that's the other thing that makes me think there's at least some... Uh, 
legitimacy to this article is that last year we covered an article to talk about how the U.S. military was like, you got to get TikTok off of your devices. That's when I said no TikTok. It went away for a little while and then it crept back in. It wasn't until this became mainstream and my children's friends were like, you need to get TikTok off of your phones. And, you know, my, my middle son was like, no, dad, I'm not, I came home. Like, you need to get TikTok off your device. Like, bad news, dude. He's like, no, I already did because so-and-so told me that it was bad. I'm like, but dad, <laughs> never mind. You know what? As long as it's off your phone, right? I had that conversation with myself <laughs> <Yeah>. in my head. <laughs> you start to think yeah, about cause, this. Because like, your kids' me. friends are going to believe you yes. much more so than your own kids. And actually, you know, the beautiful PSYOP strategy about that, Paul, is not only will that exfiltrate around all these kids, they will actually educate their grandparents as well. Yeah. So it'll yeah. go back up the chain yeah. <laughs> exactly where you need it to. Because that's who the grandparents ask. Yes. They ask the yeah, grandkids. Exactly. They're yeah. like, what is this TikTok thing you keep talking about? I, should I put I, it on my phone? And you want your kids saying, Grandma, it's bad. It comes from China. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's a proud, proud parent moment right yeah. there. You really start to think about, though, a lot of the – again, I mean, Paul, this goes back to our, our prior segment and a lot of the work that you and I have been mm. you know, trying to get something put together on is – all of these work from home and home networks and the ability to secure them properly, what devices are on those networks? It's it's all of the kids' phones, it's the kids' tablets, it's your wife's computer, it's the Pinterest, uh, you know, god-awful homeschooling uh, applications and web apps that, they, that these mm -hmm. places are using. All of these things are within inside of your network and basically your corporate network and boundary now that your device that has sensitive information on – that has access maybe to customer data, customer networks. Like this becomes a really bad day, uh, and this is exactly where we said things were going to start targeting, right? Like leveraging these home networks in order to target and get access to these corporate devices. And once these devices start going back into the corporate network, again, there's a whole other strategy and a whole other risk category that I think people are going to have to start coming up with good mitigating strategies, good plans, and then making sure that and ensuring that the devices coming back in didn't get popped or have you know some kind of data leakage on. To that end, Tyler, the scariest thing for me in this article was this uh, these two this sentence. There's also a few snippets of code on the Android version that allows for the downloading of a remote zip file, unzipping it, and executing said binary. Basically, what could you means possibly do with that? <laughs> anything that you want, right? Uh, basically, now you have remote command execution on a device that's inside of our home networks while everyone is now working from home. Yep. And if you're not embarking on the journey that Tyler and I have been talking about when we talked about in the first segment of segmenting your network uh, and having mm -hmm. some controls in place to limit the exposure, that means that now your Android device running TikTok, if it can run whenever it wants, it can make a connection out to a vulnerable IoT device <laughs> unless you're preventing that, right? Yeah, my, that my, step my further, network actually too, has think... like eight different segments now. Yeah, uh, because of this. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and an the, IoT, the, exactly. An IoT device with a firmware that was also manufactured in China that's used in like a thousand different IoT devices that the people that are developing Tencent games know about because the same person called them and said, you know, hey, I know you guys make thousands of games. Uh, we want you to embed this little piece of code in your, in your right. games. And here's the, the backdoor username and password for that IoT right. device. And, and mm -hmm. any IoT chip camera. Level, chip, chip level, level port yeah. knocking has been a thing for a very, very long time. And like mm -hmm. chip level and hardware level supply chain issues 
uh, is one of those problems that's not going to get solved. Like we can barely solve some of the fundamentals, right? So the fact that we have all these devices with inside of you know all of our networks, our ability to trust hardware at this point has is disappeared. And so this just adds another layer of that. And then you know these devices, even if you remove TikTok, because of the level of access, purported access uh, that this has, that seems like a very long-term strategy to me. That seems like you have the ability to upload and download and execute, which can you root the device? Can you flash a new uh, piece of firmware? Are you port knocking? Are you setting up persistence on that device? Uh, these are things that are Tyler you know, has are the, largest, the largest tinfoil hat out of all of us. <laughs> I love <laughs> Tyler for that, right? Because I, well, I was thinking along this, this, the same thing. I'm like, okay, so I removed this TikTok app, but I'm like, if I'm reading what I'm reading in here and that's true, I'm like, what's to say that like, why am I not wiping all my devices? And then even if I do, right, my tinfoil hat gets a little little thicker on the on the top. Even if I do, what if they've embedded themselves into some firmware subsystem on my phone or my so bootloader, kid's phone? Bootloader hacking has been a thing on Android for a long time. Like I've, um, I've been flashing custom ROMs and, and messing with those for, mm. you know, decades. So something is not it's not out of the realm of possibility that you leverage a script that does a uh, roots a device and flashes a new bootloader on that. And once that bootloader's flashed, like at that point, until you reflash that bootloader, which most normal people, unless they're using ADB, uh, are not doing. Right. Uh, yeah. That's yeah. never going to go away. But here's <laughs> the interesting thing for me, in terms of like a security strategy, especially now for your home because of COVID nineteen. Obviously, people working from home, right? I think largely we've presented the threats to the home network as someone's going to drive up and be in range of your wireless devices or someone on the internet, because we're only 10 milliseconds away from every attacker on the internet, someone on the internet's going to exploit something through an open hole or port in your firewall. So if you got a good firewall and it doesn't allow except inbound connections and You've got a properly secured Wi-Fi network, Bluetooth, Zigbee, Z-Wave, whatever it is, right? As much as you can with those, uh, you know, particular protocols, that you're good. And what we've always hinted towards, and I think it's really coming to fruition today, is that's only a small piece of the picture. Well, I mean, what we just described are several different ways into your home network that is now also your work network and will likely be that for the foreseeable future for yep. many people. Right. Because I've, se I've seen these work networks where they've got a, literally a VPN from uh, a device inside the network going back into the mm -hmm. corporate network and everything was being routed through the corporate network. I right. mean, I, I saw one very recently and they were asking me about it. And they said, we get all this, so much traffic from all these people. And I'm like, look at your rules. Your open VPN is pushing out a route that routes all their internet traffic through your your network. And mm. so that means their kids are sitting there watching SpongeBob videos and, and TikTok and it's yep. routing through yep. your corporate network. And point. they're like, Oh, well, what should we do about that? And I'm like, Don't route their traffic through your mm. network. But you know, it, it's like, you know, I then I have yeah, to so, so there's 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 a downside to that too, because you know, I've I've consulted with multiple people who are going, not nah, we're just gonna split tunnel, we can't do it, we cannot like send all the the traffic in and you turn it we're having latency issues we're having whole family issues blah 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 so they split tunnel it and that opens them up to more interesting challenges right yeah so there's no winning in this no. uh and it's um 
Oh, unless you segment the fuck out of your network, which is what I just did. But right, um, and and don't yeah. use Wi-Fi range extenders. I don't know where you folks fall on this. While we're on this topic, uh, there was an unpatched uh, Wi-Fi extender that had a vulnerability. I've always been of the the philosophy that if you properly design your Wi-Fi network, and this may mean that you got to run some cables and be creative about how cables are run through your home, especially if you got an older home that. You know, it doesn't have a lot of cables running through it. Airplane bit. Right? You got you to you be creative. You may need a hammer drill and all that stuff, oh, right? Yeah. You got to have to get dirty. You got to have to get dirty. Exactly. And, and it does no. suck. But if you properly design and implement your Wi-Fi network at home, and it's not rocket science for lack of a better term, right? It's just a matter of getting enough access points that are of good quality in your home. You should never come to the point where you're like, oh, I need a Wi-Fi range extender, right? Because uh, to me, that they've just all been pretty crappy. Yeah. How else am I going to yeah, drive uh, around town and yeah. make sure I always have Wi-Fi? Right. <laughs> now, yeah, the well, solutions yeah, from Google, you know, I, uh, Google makes a good one. Eero makes a good one. Linksys makes one um, that does the proper uh, Wi-Fi bridging and, and backhauling, right? And, and mm-hmm. it, this is hard to get uh, the specifications, but... If you've got a device that has two radios, one to serve clients, one to do the backhaul and connection and the connection back in the bridge, that's right. cool. You're probably going to have a good good time with that, right? Um, but a lot of these Wi-Fi range extenders are just a gimmick. My yeah, I mean, now, they, nowadays you need they're garbage. Mm. <laughs> they're garbage. Look, here's the thing. If you're going to pen test, especially us in the industry, don't fucking use Wi-Fi. Plug the Ethernet cable in, you yeah. moron. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. You know, uh, Wi-Fi is for the rest of the family. <laughs> it's yeah. just not for right. me. It's for the phones <laughs> and the tablets, right? Everything else should really, you should try and get yeah. a, a wired cable. I, I, mean, yeah. I, I, cables, I cables and switches and all that stuff are so cheap. I mean, you can buy yeah. Cat 7 cables that are really what we paid for Cat 5, Cat 5E cables back in the day, right? Like, it, mm-hmm. it, you can probably even get Cat 8 and run, is it 100 gig that Cat 8 is rated? It'll run 100 gig. It'll yeah. run yeah, 100 yeah. gig, Who right? even has that, that speed in the I house? I mean, yeah, anyway. where are you going to plug it's it really into that will run 100 gig, but at home anyway. My, I did, a, yeah, I did one with... That's the thing. I've, I've, got a, I've got one SSID, which my phone sits on. It's the only... It's the only device on that SSID. But aside from that, everything's wired in my office. Fuck yeah. that. I'm yeah. Not using no, I agree. Yeah. I did a war sailing attack. So yeah, I remember you telling me about this. The, the person had a range extender on the on a dock that was that was bridging to their sailboat out in the uh, yep. on a mooring, and it went all the way back to their house. And I was able to get into their house from my sailboat because it was it was like all default passwords, and so I was able well, to. Well, then you talk it. about on the open ocean Wi-Fi signals. Well, hell no, yeah, I could no pick that sig- there. I mean, I could pick that signal up a long way away mm. from that mm. that range extender sitting down on the end of the dock. And mm. I even told the guy, and he was like, "Yeah, so what?" So uh, yeah. There's, I mean, that's that's a that's a huge issue, not just with not just with people doing range extension, but you start to look at a lot of these urban uh, and in even rural cities where there's not a ton of ISP options. You end up with these ISPs that are running, uh, say, Ubiquity gear on point-to-point or Microtik uh, point-to-point gear uh, for all their backhauls, and you're providing you know a a direct connection to you know something that doesn't have a hard wire. You're running wireless back to the ISP. Uh, at the ISP level, 
that brings in a whole nother set of issues that people are not thinking about and maybe don't even have an option for, right? Like these ISPs, how, how secure is their backbone? How secure is is the network and handoff that they're handing? Uh, if you're using cable modem, what is their DOCSIS configuration in and flashing look like? Like those are all mm. really easy to get. Uh, there's been a ton of research on that for years, but not a ton of visibility publicly. Oh, uh, I see what you're saying. Okay, Tyler, the- you're killing me, man, because um, the ISPs are barely capable of. Sh- Okay, I, I'm just <laughs> no, but no, but it's a it's a great point though. Like I, gum, you know, the the providers, you're it's like a cloud provider, right? Like to a certain extent, your security is at the mercy of how your ISP has implemented that yeah. wireless backhaul, right? That's not under your control. Now, if you were to purchase your the Ubiquiti gear yourself and set that up, you'd be more in control of the security. You could make sure the firmware updates were there. I think Ubiquiti does a great job of keeping up to date on their stuff. There's always firmware updates. It's based on Linux. They've got a lot of great information. It's very well tested by the community. I know uh, friends of mine that have set up uh, Ubiquiti wireless point-to-points. And like, not only is the security pretty good, but like they're like the wireless backhaul. Like The technology is awesome. And if I had the same experience with the Ubiquiti gear, it's a little on the nerdier side of then you know plugging in a Google... Uh, you know, home, whatever they call their nest. Or I don't know what they're calling right. it today, but Eero and those, you know, devices do all that for you, uh, which goes back to our first segment of like, where do you want to be on the spectrum, right? Sure, you could build a Linux embedded device yourself and make it an access point. All the more power to you. You may choose that as your, your project that you want to do at home and that's cool, but like how many things can you build yourself from scratch at home, right? Like you're going to run Gen 2, uh, or Arc Linux at home as your desktop, and you're going to build your own Wi-Fi access points from Linux from scratch, and you're going to build your own firewall and run IP tables from scratch. Like, if you can do that, uh, contact me because I I, I want to hire you. But oh. <laughs> that's not like most of us. We have to I've already I, got pick a and job, choose. Man, that's exactly what I do. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I do all of that shit. <laughs> and, and that's cool, right? But you know, I, some of us want to, you know, like I don't know, Joff, you're just a ninja. Just, it's just, just like co- it's just like CAs and, and code signing certs and and mm-hmm. all of these. There is a level of trust that you have so much control over and then there is things that you really do not have that much control over and ISP and their security is one of them so that means you have to do and implement as much security and and go backwards as far as you can make sure that like all your TLS and all the things you're connecting is all done well uh, otherwise like yeah but Tyler, yeah, I mean, Tyler you're gonna bad. spend fucking every hour of your night reading through kernel source code because if you really get down to this You've got to read the driver source code for every fucking nick. You have yep. got to read yeah. every every piece of line right. of code. And and, and this but is the while thing. You're, but while you're doing that, what what's the stuff you're not paying attention to, right? Because I think that yeah. the, the 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 best of us, uh, it, it, Joff is an example, right? Awesome technically, Joff, obviously, but very good at time management where you can do some of those things, right? I'm not that great at time management and you know those I good either right you gotta pick sometimes you have to pick and choose it's the same thing in an enterprise right you gotta pick and choose do i want to build this solution myself do i want to use something open source and customize it do i want to buy a commercial solution and that's just not one decision you're making that's a series of decisions in the technologies that you're looking to implement it's the same thing in the home right i strongly encourage like don't buy everything off the shelf and go commercial to secure your home, to secure your enterprise, whatever it, it may be, have those projects that keep you technical and looking at things because 
if you're deciding to go look at kernel code and, and read driver code, what you're learning there is going to extend to other things, and that's valuable. But you can't look at every single line of code on every single device that you're running in your no, home. Nobody has enough time in their life. Right, uh, exactly. Uh, look, I, I've, but, but entertained the thought and spend some time there. I have developed kernel uh, drivers for mm -hmm. Nix in the OpenBSD project in my past. So I have some experience there. Okay. So having had that little bit of experience, it's enough to like twig that awareness and keep that in your brain yeah, going forward. I, yeah. I love that, Joff. Uh -huh. Yeah. You, I, I think yeah. you should cho choose projects that challenge you a little bit, make you learn something. And those skills will transfer to other things as you move forward. Yeah, and it makes you think about other things too. I mean, I mean, yeah. as, as I mean, I always remember like writing. Uh, one of the things I took on once was was we wrote audio drivers for Gen two. Mm -hmm. It was just a fun thing. We were trying to get it. It was like uh, we're going to make this work. By God, like, it's we're just going to do work. it. Yeah. And you know, it was like lots of Gen, lots of you know, lots of sitting around. But I mean, just the just learning how to do that was very valuable. Even though I never used that skill again. Yes. I, just the idea of it, how those drivers worked, how they fit into that, the, the kernel modules and all that stuff was—it was really something that you take away from there, and you'll have it with you for years and years and years and and forever. You I guess. should, uh, yeah. It reminds me of the time I decided to cross compile some code that read from a Wi-Fi spectrum analyzer on a MIPS platform, right? Like that's not something you might want to do every day, but valuable experience, <laughs> Very valuable. right? And, and but my point is, you can't do that with every single challenge that you're up against right like sometimes you got to be uh taking the i'm gonna go buy something to solve that problem yeah right use open source to solve that problem build something myself to solve that problem and balance manage your time uh accordingly and be strategic about where you're acquiring skills yeah. and, and not necessarily pigeonholing yourself into one thing challenge yourself go into a different Error, maybe make right? you understand what you're going to buy better if you if exactly, you actually yes. work on it. I mean, yeah. I worked on. I've done that too, right? I yeah. worked on you know IP tables, firewalls. For mm -hmm. I wrote my own firewalls and all this stuff for years. And when when I got to the point where somebody said we we're going to buy you a PIX, mm -hmm. I had a lot deeper understanding yes. of, of what Agreed. was going on, what needed to go on, That's and what needed point. to be configured yeah. because I had spent all that time pounding on those IP tables, firewalls that I didn't really know how to do, and I had to do it because I didn't have a choice. And then when I got some commercial product, I really understood a lot better what needed to happen. And if you're going to buy a commercial Netgear product, you may want to <laughs> be aware that they just uh, fixes for 10 issues affecting 79 products. Uh, one of the vulnerabilities, uh, my comment was all around the world, it's the same song or vulnerability. Multiple Netgear devices contain a stack buffer <laughs> overflow in the HTTPD web servers handling of upgrade underscore check.cgi, which may allow for unauthenticated remote code execution with root privileges. Yeehaw. Oh, oh root privileges. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> no. Uh, I was just doing a pen test, well, I don't know, last week or something. And uh, um, it's amazing <laughs> how, how slack some developers can be because... <laughs> I, I love you guys, but you go for the shortcut, and and I get it. Uh, but you know, uh, well, when no, you've got the yeah, well, it is because I need to listen on a port that's less than ten twenty five. Therefore, I need to be root, right? That's Which, right. That's, that's right. not necessarily the case, 
right? And I mean, you. But could, it sure is easier. <laughs> it's a hell of a lot easier than figuring out like what the capabilities are uh-huh. that you might need to grant that process so that it can do things that normally require root privileges. Uh, you know, Nginx runs the primary process as root, and then all of the children that are serving those processes as non-root, which in containers, as I've talked about in the past, can cause issues because then your container's running uh, as root. So you can, especially in a container environment, it makes it a, a little easier uh, to map port 80 uh, into a higher port to be able to do that. I talked about that when I presented in the Cyber Jungle uh, and the Container Security Summit. Look, but- so, so speaking of containers, aren't you just in love with containers? I mean, I, ju- I just dockerized another thing this week mm. because I'm working on a class, and I'm like, God, that was easy. That was really cool. You know what's yeah. awesome, you know, Joff? Like- and it ties into another story about, uh, that I think I put in here about Tomcat having vulnerabilities, which turned out to be you know, denial of service. And Apache Guacamole having vulnerabilities. Now, Apache Guacamole runs Tomcat. If you've ever done any kind of vulnerability scan on it, you'll recognize that pretty quickly. Uh, or even just looking under the covers in Guacamole. Um, uh, but I run Guacamole in, inside of a container. So it's a matter of me just updating my container. My config stays. I run it. I'm, I'm upgraded. It, it makes upgrading so much easier. To your point, Joff, right? Love containers It's, for it's that. the agility that you get with it is amazing. Yeah. It's just like... Oh, okay. Well, I'll just swap that out. Okay, done. Yeah. Okay, move on. <laughs> but the scary so, part is containers are not so always contained, right? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, that's true. If you're solving a problem by running container with dash dash privileged, that means all the Linux capabilities are available to that container, which essentially means even if it's not running as root, it's still running with all of the same permissions that a root user would have access to. And it to. still loops right back around to engineering versus security versus yes. com- putting yes. those two things together. Because yep. engineering is about making it work. And yes. containers are awesome for making it work. Security is about protecting it. Mm. And when those two things don't match and, and, and they're saying we got to have a production model out by Friday... You know, that's where the engineering part kicks in and the security part drops off the map. And you know, so you've got to mix those things together, even I, in a I, container. We did the container security uh, summit and we had a round table. And when I was bringing up some of these issues, John Kinsella caught me off guard and he was like, well, containers were never designed to provide security. And at the time I let that slide, right? But the more I think about that, who, where's the responsibility lie? That, they're, that they're means being, the responsibility lies on us as engineers, whether you're a developer, whether you're uh, a performance engineer, a network engineer, an ops engineer, or a security engineer. The responsibility lies on us collectively as engineers to go, well, if they weren't, containers weren't designed with security, that means we have to make sure that it's configured, even more so configured and securely yeah. implemented securely. I think you nailed the the correct term, though, Paul. And the issue with containers is not so much about whether it's secure or not secure. The issue is where is the responsibility? That's what everybody's wrestling with. Mm -hmm. um, Because containers threw this stuff all up in the air because the traditional organizational way of doing things was to say okay well there's security there's network infrastructure there's dev there's you know and and now containers come along and they pile it all into one bucket mm-hmm. it's like right. oh, well how can we do with that we don't have we we can't go to this group that group that oh, wait who's responsible right mm-hmm. and, and that's that's where we've got to actually come up with a new model and go okay well um you know you know what's before, interesting Jeff? Uh, 
Uh, sorry yeah, to interrupt, but uh, so uh, really quick, and then over to Jeff. But Heather Atkins came on and did. Uh, she works for Google, um, and she runs uh, a large portion of the security engineering teams for Google. And she and Google have been working on combining those roles. And she gave a whole half hour, forty five minute uh, segment, Perfect. and has a whole book on exactly what you're talking about, Jeff. Combining all those roles, how does that look uh, in the new organization? It was one of the most refreshing and in, in new uh you know kind of segments that i think we've done to talk about that issue jeff i was gonna say uh what john didn't say or the completion of his sentence is something along the lines of you know containers weren't designed for security but that doesn't mean we're not going to try to sell it to people thinking that they're doing away with their their need to do security um Meaning, yes, it's it, it's 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 a responsibility issue. I, I I have a customer right now who's in. It's been it's been two and a half hours, before, and I didn't say PCI yet. I have a PCI customer. Their oh, their their card data environment, their in scope environment, is completely running in AWS. So I'm smacking full face into. Here's all the con- con- you know control objectives. Who's responsible? And, and and you know part of it. I mean they're doing Kubernetes, mm-hmm. uh, at least in part. And you know they show me a diagram of their AWS architecture. And if I let it blur a little bit, it kind of looks like a, a network diagram. Sure. And and it and it even kind of looks like the you know sort of the the old school three tier e-commerce architecture. You know there's public facing. There's a there's a what they call a bastion area, bastion security group, which kind of looks like a DMZ, and then they have the backend. So I'm having frustrating fun, you know, living the dream of well, here's the security control. Uh, are you doing it? Well, well, no. AWS does that for us. Well, let's go take a look at AWS's what they call a responsibilities matrix and see uh, see if see if they are in fact doing that for you. So, I mean, I mean, expanding on what you're saying in terms of responsibilities, like within an organization, and I get that, but there's a lot of organizations that don't have that infrastructure in the first place in terms of organization, and they are lured into putting things in the cloud, putting things in containers, because the provider, at least at some level, hints uh, that uh, you know all that stuff is going to be taken care of. Don't worry about it. And, and for me, it's the responsibility between the customer and the provider uh, much more than who within the customer company, although we're, we're getting to that a little bit. Yeah, so I, think, I see, I see ahead, a new role emerging. I see a container security architect role emerging uh if not already there uh to to look at not just containers because they're not monolithic to look at containers in terms of their micro architecture uh and mm-hmm. how the the individual components of an application are actually properly secured with the the inter-container communications there's going to be an architect role that's going to emerge i think i think that's one of the the big problems that is not addressed right we as security the responsibility does fall to us, but we barely understand it, and that's you know pushing that tier down to even people that uh, don't have to deal with this stuff daily aren't trying to break it. Uh, even the developers don't fully understand how a lot of this integrates and how a lot of this works and what needs to be secure. So yeah, maybe the container was set up rightly, right? But what about the swarm? 
Uh, what about the API keys? Where's your stuff in your YAML files saved? Those YAML files uh, for your chef or for your uh, Jenkins server, are those uh, encrypted properly? Can I get access to those? Like, What's the, the security and layered defense in depth plan for the cloud architecture versus the swarm versus the Docker, all the way down to the Docker level? Uh, which people are still getting the fundamentals wrong. So I think because it's getting so complex and that responsibility is getting blurred, uh, the technology is also getting blurred as far as how do we properly do this and where does this uh, security kind of, we have you know traditional things for traditional networks. We know password randomization, we know local accounts, we know active directory security, but uh, AWS security, IAM, keys, and the full CDIC pipeline and where those security responsibilities lie and then how to secure them, uh, that's when it starts to, I mean, we've got that breakdown now. So I, I think I, we're running I, into those challenges. I think you're going to get to a point where you almost have to have like a security flow diagram that shows the responsibilities at each one of those points because, I mean, we used to do that with data to show what, you know who was responsible at every single point and how it interacted because there was really no way to sort of conceptualize it and security seems like it maybe needs to start laying on charts like that, just to, just so you can start visualizing it. I agree with all this. What I'm what I'm seeing as a concern, at least from my perspective, is I'm spending all of my time trying to understand all the this new technology, new ways of doing things, and extrapolating it back to the the, the language that I understand, the language of the traditional network architecture, and that's just one element. Uh, but you know, further than that, back to the security controls and and the and the you know the spirit of the requirements, the spirit of the controls. What concerns me is in all the time I'm spending just trying to take the new back to something traditional or old. Uh, what I'm not doing, and I don't know what anybody that is doing it, is looking at the new and what's wrong with the new that doesn't you know, necessarily dovetail back to the old traditional way of doing things because new new vulnerabilities and exposures and different ways to exploit uh, and misconfigure and misconstrue the new is out there that I'm certainly not looking at because I don't know that. I, what, what Google, and so if you go back to Enterprise Security Weekly, episode 187, it was segment three with Heather Adkins. Uh, mm-hmm. She wrote a book titled um, Building Secure and Reliable Systems, Best Practices for Designing, Implementing, and Maintaining Systems. And what Heather, and, and largely Google, is trying to evangelize is this merging of roles that, while yes, you still have security people, yes, you still have developers, but you also have folks that are have merged these roles together that operations sysadmin networking, security, and programming are now part of a skill set that becomes a role. Some of that takes shape in what they call a reliability engineer Mm -hmm. because building resilient and maintainable systems speaks to security, uh, certainly, is that they're challenging the notions of these traditional roles that we've had in IT and blending them uh, more into one. And the larger companies, Google, Netflix, uh, as an example, have already been doing this for some time because they've embraced these new technologies and recognized the need for security, also have the funding to fund these type of operations, right? I think that's going to start to permeate or it already has started to permeate into other uh, organizations that 
you will no longer have that traditional role of, well, I'm just a network engineer. I'm just a yeah. systems. I'm just a programmer, right? I mean, you will. Like in an ISP, we need people to run the internet, right? And those people are going to be network engineers. Don't get me wrong, right, Joff? Like you're going to need the people that run the BGP tables and help keep the internet safe. But when well, we're talking yeah, about deploying software. You're still going to need infrastructure, yeah. Yeah, you're still going to need infrastructure, you're, right? Not for every you're gonna organization. Need ba- you're going to need base infrastructure. But I, I definitely su- foresee a role that emerges where there's a security entity that is part of the 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 secops group mm-hmm. um or the devops group but they don't primarily develop they have enough familiarity with with the with the uh containerized development world to understand it but they plug into the development life cycle to secure it and that right. that's really what i was talking about a container security architect yes. there's a number of words you could probably uh, ascribe to it but i think that role has to emerge because yeah you, you think about it from the developer's perspective right now if, if you're a developer and you have no security experience at all or minimal just sort of doing your best there's got to be stress there right now there, there yeah. has to be a, a level of anxiety that's really because a lot got piled on them all of a sudden mm. right yeah and i think security's <laughs> role becomes more of research and uh, uh threat analysis right understanding what the new threats are but then uh being able to understand what the impact is to the business to the processes to the different groups and explaining that and building that into the process mm-hmm. right because it i it, even utopia is we've have roles that understand infrastructure code and security and can implement that process so we've got resilient systems right security's role is I'm looking at these new threats in this new research, and therefore, I want to go back to that person and say, we need to consider these things and change our process slightly, right? And that's the, the, the kind of that process doesn't, cycle. That doesn't even, I mean, that doesn't even address uh, SaaS or single sign-on issues that now are being implemented into this already complex yep. and multifaceted uh, Identity is so. an issue. <laughs> but you know what? I'm always an optimist when it comes to new software architectures, and I am an optimist when it comes to this one because this, for the information security community, is one of the first times where we have a solid opportunity to insert ourselves into the development lifecycle in an agile and meaningful way. And we've never had that opportunity before. We've always been considered like, the last step, oh, well, go ahead and assess my app when it's done and tell me where I broke it, which is exactly the wrong way to do it. Mm. Uh, but if you're actually in the pipeline, that you know that has significant advantage. That is a significant opportunity. Absolutely, I agree with that, Jeff. But what 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 uh, is the the impetus for companies to promote something like that? Or is it more us as a community at a macro level? I think it's the same impetus as before. If you don't do it, you're going to get spanked. I mean, yep. it really is the same. No, I, uh, but, but I, to, to that point, Joff, I think but, that y- you can sell security and this newer process that we're talking about in I can crank out new features more quickly, right? If you work towards building this uh, system where I can spin up an application, I can go test it automatically, funnel those results back in, and, and have these repeatable processes running. It means I can go up in a new feature, I can throw it into my CICD pipeline as an example, and it goes and gets security tested, 
And if there's an issue, it comes back to me as a developer. I fix it and I push it back through. It's a repeatable process. Therefore, my, my kind of sales pitch to the business is, yes, we might take a hit and a step back in productivity to implement these things. But moving forward, it means we can constantly push out new stuff and have that be implemented and deployed more securely and more reliable than before. That's yeah, the so the, the, the operational agility yes. gives us enough flexibility from a development perspective to to quickly rectify and then move on again. So th that's actually a very important point. We never had that agility before. If you inserted yourself in the software dev lifecycle and managed to successfully do it as a you slowed it down. You just slowed it down. Yeah. You slowed it down. Fantastic. Well done. Uh, but now I think there's there's a much more dynamic cycle and there's there's much more agility and acceptance to change a portion of the application not just the entire application that's the other thing monolithic versus component of an application mm -hmm. Th these are a bit a big deal so it, it is i i'm 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 opportunistic i've always been an opportunist kind of guy when yeah, it comes yeah. to this stuff um but i i you know i'm I, i'm i'm happy I'm happy that the agility is there because it, it does give us uh, significant uh, opportunities there, significant advantages. I think some of the companies are also having to adapt and and adopt some of these new technologies and and new you know new pipelines uh, because of the amount of talent that's available. And a lot of the newer developers, a lot of the newer programmers, a lot of the uh, I, I call them hipster DevOps. <laughs> these people are the ones that are. Uh, becoming more widely available and have kind of the new edge to make your apps more streamlined, be mobile platform enabled, uh, be agile, be very, very quick. So I think these companies are having and have the incentive to adopt a lot of this new stuff based on a lot of the things that those technologies bring from the development standpoint. Yeah, I think there's a great benefit to adopting some of these newer practices, right? It's hard because we have so much legacy code. Uh, as evidenced by, you know, we still see security advisories for Cisco running Telnet. Like, really? Like, I thought, really? Like, really? Uh, so there the is one that, the one that kills the one that kills me in the infrastructure space, and I literally found it last week, uh, is the smart install stuff. Right? And that vulnerability. So uh, Cisco smart install, and, and I'm not banging on Cisco here. Wait, it's just what, so what's a, a smart uh, install? Maybe just a little bit. What's a smart install in Cisco? I don't remember now. So it's it's a uh, it's an API that they've got. Uh, it it's, it's a webby driven thing. Mm. And the problem with the vulnerability is you could send a single packet to the box, which changed this TFTP address, and then force it to TFTP to config to you, mm -hmm. the attacker. Oh. Um, you know where could that go wrong, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Um, you know. <laughs> uh, and things like you know you 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 find those things and then uh, things like uh, good old Cisco Type Seven. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that comes to how you're hashing your passwords and your config, right? Because right? no one should have access to those until they do. And and, and then things go terribly <laughs> wrong, right? And unfortunately, in the infrastructure world, see again, this is something that network infrastructure has always had this separation, and I wish it wasn't so. It's better now that we're running cloud and there's a lot of big control infrastructure there, but. If you go back to traditional infrastructure world, some of that software is really, really old, and they they don't want to upgrade it because 
the disruption potential is too much. Like it's the it's the classic. Well, and, and in this vulnerability, uh, Telnet's vulnerable leads to high CPU usage. The only way to remediate is to reboot the device. Now, anyone that's had to reboot a router, now we're talking about Cisco uh, XE software. I'm assuming these are really big routers that rebooting them probably cause outages for a lot of... Then you got to oh, reload, yeah. reload yeah, all the BGP asking. routes. We all know how long that can take. I mean, probably faster on some of these larger switches, uh, routers, but, you know, still, that's that sucks. You've got some splaining to do. Yep. Got to put my change control request in for that. Um, Jaffa, I, I had my article number four, Python arbitrary file write prevention, um, the tar bomb. Uh, so basically you're untarring a file and you can uh, access uh, and overwrite files outside of the directory structure. Um, operating systems like macOS have protections from that. What they're saying is that uh, the Python standard library is vulnerable to this type of attack when used out of the box, and the article goes into ways to code it properly. Have you seen this before? I have not seen it, uh, to be honest with you. Um, it's I'm looking at it right now. I mean, the tar file module, um, I wasn't aware of, um, but I'm not so sure I would directly call it a vulnerability because... Let's be honest. If you're on a Unix system and you untie something, you can shoot yourself in the foot really easily. I yes. Mean, yes. Right. I mean, uh, your 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 protection there is your operating system protections. Your file which system. Are your standard yeah. user stuff. Yeah. Yeah. File system uh, permissions. Right. So, eh, I'm not sure I buy it. Um, I mean, is it something to be aware of? Sure. Is it really a security vulnerability per se? Uh, I don't know. And uh, like, uh, how often? I mean, are you, the tar like library in Python? I don't. know How widely used is that? Like, what's the use cases for that? I've never used it. I've never. Ever. I'm curious. I'm curious <laughs> if it's implemented in something like uh, like Seven Zip or some of the, yeah. the open source mm. uh, things that are I'm, leveraging those libraries. Because in that, that becomes a an interesting issue. Like all of these leaked files or you know something that's coming down in a tar. If you can do interesting things with that, and uh, that, and people it, use the tar library for like output compression, so when they're I dumping was going to say things, it sounds like a deserialization so, vulnerability, right? Yeah, and you have to be very careful anytime you're deserializing yep. data, and that mm -hmm. and that's that to me that falls in yep. that bucket, right? Of yep. just being aware when you're a developer. Yeah. Now, if you've got a you know, object deserialization issue, I mean that that is a serious issue, right? Um, uh, you trust, you know, you don't don't just blindly trust your input, right? Um, yeah. That that's where object serialization. I mean, don't blindly from. trust anything when you're writing code. Like I, uh, that's uh, developing our internal app. Man, I don't trust anything. I mean, I check the if that shit's none. I and then I check the length, and then I, like I'm checking to make sure it's the right type. Like I'm just always checking, even if I can't immediately come up with the use case as to how that would happen. Uh, I, and but, the more but, experience you get, the more you realize that those conditions will present itself. And you tend to code a lot more defensively. I've found the more experience yep. you have developing an application yes. that has users like other than yourself. We're talking about Recon NG, right? Like you're the user of Recon NG. And therefore, you can protect your API keys. But when you flip to writing an app that has external users, whether that's five or whether that's five million or five billion, right? 
you tend to code a lot more defensively, and that's not always your first instinct. But there are two aspects there. So there, there is the what I call the long dark night of programming, and that's where you're just stuck, and you've been there for weeks, and you're you've got a deadline, and you're trying to get it. And here, oh my God, here's a solution, and you embed it. Yes. And, and so oh, you, you don't totally think agree. defensively. You're just like, yeah. oh my God, there it is. It's a holy grail, and you pull it in, and you, you and stick it, it in your code, it and compiles. You go, oh my God, it works. Oh God, oh God, it works. And 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 you're so get happy. Commit. Yeah, <laughs> done. <laughs> and and I mean, and, and so you know, I think that's one problem. And and the second problem is changes to libraries after the fact. So yeah. you embed something. You 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 had that. You were very defensive, and you, you took all these nice measures. And then you know, six months down the road, it changes. It's updated. There's a mod to it, and all of a sudden, maybe something sort of worms its way in there that you right. didn't think about when you were coding defensively the first time because it wasn't. That can like be a benefit, time. though. Like. Um, we were talking about Instapaper integration. The maintainer of that library is doing a great job of keeping up to date, yep. but some libraries may not. Yes. So no matter how defensible you are in your own code, if you're importing a library uh -huh. that hasn't been updated in three to five years, yep. you're still going to have and a vulnerability get, no matter what you do. The further you get in the weeds with that stuff, the yep. worse it gets. So you start, you know, you get, again, you're back in the long, dark night of programming. You're frantically right. looking for a solution. I'm backing up my defensive things in my yes. code to make that library and, work. And yeah. now you're pulling so, some so whacked out thing in yeah. there. Good job. This whole discussion is why I have a love affair with regular expressions. Um, and I promote them, uh, you know, like, like ruthlessly when I teach the Python class. I mean, regular expression yes, to me do. is like mathematical perfection. It is mm. the way to take an input boundary and be very, very precise in and what specific, data yeah. you are accepting. Yep. Um, right. And it, it can and will save you. Yeah. You know, from from serious exploitation conditions, uh, and and I think for any security professional and developer to to fall in love with regular expressions, I could see nothing better. No matter what the language, no matter what the construct, regular expressions are your friend. I I, I agree, Jeff. But uh, maybe uh, but the, here's the the struggle that I think developers have is there's more than one way to accomplish that goal, and what's the right solution, right? And you've got to check for multiple, like checking for type. There's a lot of different ways that I've found to check for type. And that varies from Python 2 to Python 3, as you very well know, Joff, right? So what yep. is, I, I got to check for type. And then if that's valid, then I have to check the input if it is of the correct type. And there's at least half a dozen ways at least to do that in Python. Is that true? Well, the, the, there's a lot of ways to do it, but this mm. this is exactly why I made the statement I made, right? Once you know you've got the right type, if you even want to check that, mm -hmm. smack a regular expression against it, stick it in an exception handler, right. and move yeah. on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, mm. um, it, it, it does a hell of a lot for you because you throw the exception and, and get out of dodge if, right. if nothing lines up. Um, so, you know, I'm, I, I'm a stickler for making sure whatever data that I'm processing is exactly the data that I expect. And every security professional should be that way. Right. Don't be afraid uh, to raise like, an exception. I think is the, <laughs> the yeah, rule that Python, right? But this yeah. is in the dangerous the realm of, go, of the... I don't understand this shit. The dangerous <laughs> realm of the assumption that people are good coders. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, true. I, I've cleaned up a lot of a lot of bad oh a God. lot of bad code, right? I mean, and, if Josh is coding it, I'm pretty good with it. But are you? But I mean, it's like that's not what you often get, and it's like assigned to somebody, and they wrote their sloppy ass code, and you're like, right. oh my God, we got to get this working. I love uh, 
I love try except else, right? Like right. only do that if I didn't get an exception. Yeah. Right. Yes. Yeah, so so it's interesting uh, that you say that, Paul, because exception handling can be a dark art in it and is. of itself. I've noticed that. Yeah. Because you, you get into this weird thing, especially if you fall into the habit of accepting and then using pass or continue right. in the exception handler, you can have hidden conditions which can go for years yeah. without you seeing them, but you might be missing data. You, you've protected your app right. properly, but your exception handler is sort of glossy. It is. Stuff, it is right? a dark. Yeah, <laughs> like using pass and continue in an accept is probably not always the right answer. Oh, right? Really a good practice, but sometimes yeah. if you're in a hurry – it's going to get you where you need to be. You might right. miss a little bit of stuff. Yeah, but. like returning in an accept. I try not to do that. I try and always raise, right? Because you want to pass that back to the calling function when you get into larger sets of Python code is one thing I learned the hard way uh, and had to recode a bunch of stuff. Well, and then, and then there's the whole issue of scope specificness with the exception handling. Like how deep do you want your exceptions? Do you want yes. your exception handling to be way out somewhere on the global scope or on a class level scope, or do you want it to be really fine grained and in on an individual function, individual uh, individual statement usage within that function. And, and it's kind of a philosophy thing. You got to go, is. Oh wow. Wow. How am I going to do this? You right. know? <laughs> like, do I, do I use one try accept or do I use 12 in yeah. the answer is yeah, likely and, somewhere in between right but and, yeah and you can and you can tie yourself in knots and and do i actually want to try accept that has a custom error message then re-raise the exception or mm -hmm. you know what do i want to do so um it's a dark art <laughs> but i you know I, and i think that's what leads to a lot of uh weird vulnerabilities or vulnerabilities in general is a lot of it just like we've seen rfc's and tcp ip right a lot of it's left up to the interpretation to the developer Yep. And, and educating exactly. that developer on, like, what's the right way? <laughs> it's, that's left up to interpretation, especially when we're talking about exception handling. The right way is what gets them the pay raise next time around. They do their performance review. That's the right that's way. That's the right way. <laughs> I, I like to think the right way is what's the most resilient and, and maintainable are two qualities that I look for when, when I write and implement software. But uh, I don't always get there, of course. Yeah, not many of us do, in all cases, for sure. It's look, hey, engineering software is a tough game. Nobody should go into that one lightly. I mean, really it is. is. It takes yeah. some real experience, especially in the modern age where you're now going to assume that you know, I, when I wrote code, it, it was assumed that there was a small number of people that would have access to it. Now you have to assume everybody in the world is going to have access to it, and, right? And exactly. be able to deconstruct it, and and you know, somebody's going to think around that box. And there's going to be people like like Joff looking at it, or or people like you looking at well, it. Well, it, it's interesting you say that because uh, you know we look at Firefox 78 is out, and if you read through the release notes, there's not a lot of information about what security bugs they fixed. And uh, this has always been my gripe with software manufacturers, whether it be open source or commercial, that if there was a security vulnerability. I want to know as much detail, and I understand this is a double-edged sword, right? But I'm on the side of, I want to know as much as possible so that I can put mitigations in place. If I don't understand the vulnerability, if I don't understand how it came to be, how it's implemented in code, if I don't have, you know, the diff, 
of of what changed essentially at the end of the day how am i going to defend my software how am i going to defend think- my enterprise if i don't know the root cause of the vulnerability and when you have software uh, manufacturers that are putting out software saying, yeah, like, you know, we fix stuff, right? Or we fixed this and that was a security vulnerability, but we called it a bug or we fixed a bunch of stuff and we just didn't tell you all the details about what, what it was that fixed it. That puts the defenders at a disadvantage. It also puts the attackers at a disadvantage. And mm-hmm. I, I get that that balancing act, right? I guess I'm more in the camp of if we all know about it, it evens the playing field. However... From a defensive perspective, not everyone's going to look that deep into all of the security fixes to yep. make use of that data. A, I agree. Lo- a lot of that is, I think, due to the fact that most vendors assume and or believe that all of their end users are going to push whatever update they, they right. feed to them in a fairly quick manner, right? Like yep. they assume that this is going to get done. So. In that assumption, they don't always account for the fact that we may have to put in mitigating controls in the meantime in order to make this rollout happen uh, with inside of our 90-day change window uh, where we're taking down critical applications. Have you you ever played like Nintendo Wii with your kids and you load a game and it's like, oh, I got to like download this update. And your kids (laughs) are like, I just want to play the game. And I'm like, I get that, dude. Like, I want to play the game too, right? So we're going to skip that software update, right? Like... Sometimes I think software manufacturers forget there are human beings and we just want to use the software mm-hmm. and not take a time kids out. kids on the other end that are impatient. Very impatient. Well, I, mean, well, I was going to say, I mean, you jumped over to games, but we're hopefully talking about the enterprise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, you know, when, when patches and updates and fixes are pushed out, I, I don't necessarily agree with Tyler in that the companies ex- expect their users to just update. I, I think they... Uh, I think that's true to some degree, but I think it's much more, uh, well, we put it out there, so our our job is done. And, and from a liability perspective, it's on you now, not on us. Yeah, that is true. Yeah, I think that's that's probably way more accurate that way. And But not providing that, that level of detail, I think there are good companies that do that, and I think a lot of that is long-standing culture, and some of that is age of the company and what kind of crap storm they've went through uh, disclosing certain things or uh, that's also possible coming down from like their general counsel or their liabilities and and compliance uh, people with inside the company like we can't really say this because that actively and uh, negatively impacts and puts us at a liable risk so there's always that business risk aspect but but there's a legal issue there like what's the it, it, do I absolve myself of responsibility as a software manufacturer once I make that patch available? And to what degree have I made it difficult for my users to apply that patch? And based on that difficulty level, where does the responsibility fall? In other words, I can put out a patch, but it's got a super high probability that's going to cause issues, and it's super hard to install. Therefore, my users aren't going to install it and therefore be under more risk what level of responsibility falls on the software manufacturer in that case? That's a legal. Well, I, that's a good legal there, question. Well, it it it's yes, it's a legal question to some degree, but it's it's more of a case law 
you know, what, what are the precedents mm. set for in, in that sense? It's illegal, but you know, there's a, a very old saying that you can lead a horse to water, but mm. you can't make them drink. And, and I, I, I think that much more so the companies, you know, their responsibility more or less ends with, you know, we, we, we put the bug out there, or the patch, the, mm-hmm. the update or whatever it is, we put it out there. We gave you the notice, uh, you, you know, it, it's on you. Uh, interestingly, if I can segue a little bit, uh, Lee has an article that, uh, his article number 10, I kind of touches on, you know, sort of a real world scenario of what a lot of what we're talking about. Um, the article is talking about, uh, uh, Adobe, who I guess now owns this company that produces a e-commerce platform called Magento which their version one is getting ready to go end of life, meaning out of support, meaning there are going to be no more security bug fixes, patches, updates being released. And this impacts the PCI world because PCI, a a common interpretation of one of the PCI requirements is you got to install all the security patches and keep things secure. And if if a system's out of serv- out of out of service, end of life, not being patched or updated, you can't really use it because you can't claim that there's any patches out there. Um, and and if you read the article, you know the, this older version has been out there for quite a while, and they've yeah, been so, postponing uh, the end of life. For yeah, so Jeff, uh, so it says the 1.x branch was released in 2008 and was yep. initially scheduled to reach end of life in November 2018. Uh, uh, right. I would say, obviously not being an attorney, right, but uh, how well that was communicated to the uh, user community and customers of that, that software, I would think plays into it, right? If they were very clear and somewhat frequent communications that here's the release and then at some point here's when it's going to be end of life and then there was two years between when they said it was going to be end of life to when it was actually end of life that that's a reasonable amount of time to allow for companies to upgrade to the 2.x version right um to be able to receive support so a couple things uh and i was you know I'd never heard of this thing. I've not encountered it. Uh, so I was trying to figure out what exactly is it. And as near as I can tell, it's an e-commerce platform, including including the shopping cart. Um, uh, 2008, when it, when it came out, the company was Magento. Somewhere along the line, and I lost Adobe, track of yeah. it. Adobe owns it now, but mm-hmm. o- Adobe didn't own it a year or two or three ago. Mm-hmm. So part of the complications from a legal perspective is ownership and responsibility when you know the original company that that first put out the system has been acquired one or two or three times. And I'll throw another wrinkle in there, Jeff. What if you're an OEM that includes mm-hmm. Magento and you haven't right. updated your software? Where yep. does it fall? On Adobe, on Magento, or the OEM, <laughs> or the customer? Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. That's now, why you have all those user agreements, though. And <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, you've exactly. agreed right. to all of them, and so it falls yep. on hey. you. Everybody click through. But the, you know, the article is talking about you know hundreds of thousands, some some large number of merchants that are out there that are all online stores of some sort, which means they're probably small. Which means they probably don't do much in the way of security. They don't have all this infrastructure that we always apl- imply that they have. They've gotten roped into PCI because c- they know that, but you know they've got this thing that does it for them that supposedly mm. 
you know, that's all they have to worry about. Ironically, uh, and I don't want to get off on too much of a tangent, but, uh, you know, Bengento is, uh, you know, falls into the category sort of of a payment application. Mm-hmm. And, and one of the PCI overarching requirements is merchants are supposed to use approved, evaluated, certified payment systems and payment applications. There's, and there's separate compliance programs and certification programs that look at the, the, the technology, both the hardware technology and the software technology that comprise payment systems. So uh, ordinarily, if I was looking at a retailer or a merchant and they were using payment solution X, one of the, my activities is to go to the PCI site and look it up and make sure that it's an approved, certified, current system. They're not on there at all, and I and and I think the reason why they're well, I don't know why they're not on there, but you know the article is talking about well, you know companies are going to fall out of compliance if they're still using it because they're not going to be able to keep things current. And I'm like, they should be out of compliance because they're using something that's just not even on the approved list in the first place. Job, but, is this the danger of writing software that's like too good? Like if you put out a, a piece of software that just works. <laughs> Right, <laughs> it, it almost de-incentivizes people from upgrading to the latest version yeah. because it works so well. I mean, mainframe technology to some of your background, Doug, right, yeah. and things like that. It it the, just the, works. The, the, the industry has clearly suffered from that, right? And is it really suffering? Mm. I mean, when well, you yeah, think if about it, works like, that well. <laughs> Older software it, it, tends to work better than newer yeah. software because it's battle-tested, Yeah. right? Now, it may contain yeah. vulnerabilities, and you may not be updating it, but people are still using it because it's super reliable and super resilient to maybe not the specific vulnerabilities that it has, but it works. Well, the only reason somebody's going to update something like that is if there are features that are needed that are in a new version. Otherwise, they're never going to touch it. I mean, if you go in there and I say, agree. we want to do an update, they're going to go, why? Right. Why do we need to well, update? Well, that's when we get in the concept of virtual patching in like a Windows environment, right? Yeah. Like, okay, I'm, I'm running older versions of Windows or whatever, but it works. Like my right. medical device works or this specific device works and, and it's upgrade, running Windows. if you upgrade, break everything. If I upgrade, I break everything. So I need a virtual patch that mitigates the vulnerability that allows me to run the older, arguably more reliable software than the newer version. I mean, we did that all the time simply because it did work. And so instead of developing something new that was better, we just fixed what was there because it was a matter of them going, here's your budget. You want to spend a whole long time developing something better or just wrap some more duct tape around that whole algorithm and keep it running. You know, and I think that's the reason why, like, a lot of us older folks and more experienced folks that have been doing implementations and software and ops for a long time are hesitant to upgrade because we know that the newer shit is probably going to present more problems than the older stuff because we've been burned so many times by doing upgrades we're hesitant to upgrade i mean i always i always hold off on like windows and things like that because they're going oh upgrade to windows 45 and you're going oh i don't know i've been using windows 40 it works i haven't had any problems yeah and you know the last time you did windows 43 it was like a total disaster and two years later everybody's laughing at people that adopted it right and then they're having to upgrade again and i go to my boss and say i go to windows me I yeah, mean, that's and just, I mean, but I go to my <laughs> right? boss. Like if I go in my boss and I stand in front of those managers and I say, "Yes, we need to do this," that's on me when it comes back and it's yeah, a disaster. And a year later, they're going, "Why in the hell did we do this?" Oh, Doug said it was a good idea. I'm like, "Oh yeah, I, I thought it was a good idea, but maybe it wasn't." And so you learn through mm-hmm. pain that 
maybe we stick with what works and not worry about that until we really, really need to. There is something to be said for being burned and being uh -huh. hesitant to upgrade. It teaches you. Well, well I, 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 I remember, remember, Je Jeff and then Joff. I remember okay. in the early days of this thing that we call InfoSec and consulting, uh, it was considered security best practice to tell people not to run the current yes. version of operating systems or applications. It was yes. better to stay a version or two back just because you wanted to let the, all the bugs get worked out I, yep. ahead of time. Yeah. When, when did we stop giving that as security best practice advice? I, we didn't. I didn't. Joff? Well, you know, actually, we still do, right? There's there's long-term releases of operating systems. Uh, yeah. Ubuntu does it, yep. right? They do. Ubuntu does their LTS. Um, but uh, I, I want to put Paul into the Wayback Machine for a minute. I, you know, if you go back to your university days, I, I literally had clients that refused, flat refused to get off of an MS-DOS-based system yeah. And, yeah. and go to Windows because they could run their single-threaded statistical program in that DOS environment, oh. yep. and by God, it worked. Yep. All day long. <laughs> I, I remember it wasn't it, just a university environment. No, no. It, it, it was everybody. It was everyone, and, and to Joss's point. Who like, the hell I, needs Windows? I remember having to put on, like, booties over my shoes and, like, the jacket and the hairnet to walk into a mm -hmm. uh, research facility. Oh. And like Joff said, like, that stuff was running DOS, it was running Windows 95, it was running Windows 2000, and they were really expensive, lots of research dollars, right? Many of us have been in the situation that were running yep. that stuff, and they're like, upgrade, what are you talking about? There's millions of dollars, literally, that are funding this research, and quite literally could have been a cure, working on a cure for certain types of cancer, and... You know, here you are, security, and what are you gonna do? Be like, you you need to upgrade and break all of your stuff, right? Like that's, it, it's an interesting uh, dilemma that we run into in security. I have to tell you, you know, back in my early days of NSA, where everything was uh, client server mainframe based, uh, and and NSA had its own operating system running on the mainframes and supercomputers mm -hmm. and their own highly, highly uh, optimized, shall we say, programming language. Uh, I, I remember the day when they said, okay, we're switching over to Unix workstations and we're going to network everything. And everything had, everything had to be rewritten. But w what, was, what was more uh, impressive uh, and sticks in my memory is office after office after office that had huge huge boxes i mean you know the old the old sun you know pizza boxes uh, uh stations ES, and, ES and the old ES450s they were like mini fridges i mean but yeah. you know nsa I bought those things, tens of thousands of them i mean they i think yeah. nsa single-handedly uh you know made made sun the company that it, it was Oh, universities too, and re yeah, yeah. No, uh, oh, don't so knock on sun. Those machines were awesome back in the day, for sure. Oh, they were. Uh, once they booted, <laughs> which <laughs> took some time. Booted. Took some time. <laughs> and, and, I love and, that. I'll never forget. I mean, when they, I, I mean, they took a US. half an hour to boot back in those days. Literally, mm -hmm. I, I never forget when I, I saw my first Sun E450. Um, it was like a Borg cube. It that is the best. Yeah. yeah. Yep. It but was yep. purple and the blue. It was beautiful. It was beautiful. That was cool. I, I was so. waiting for the delivery. I was in. I was in the in the uh, computing of uh, the university campus, and the truck rolled up into the center, 
and he opened up the, the, the tailgate and I'm like, I'm excited. I'm looking out the window and, uh, and, uh, he realized there was no, uh, loading bay, uh, to the building. And so, uh, he and a couple of guys got in the truck, laid down, kicked the ES 450 <laughs> off the back of the tailgate and it fell onto the concrete and everybody heard it inside the building. Right. And, uh, and it was totally I, fine. I walked, totally fine. Yeah. Well, it was actually, but I still walked out of the building. I said, uh, yeah, I'm refusing delivery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, but it was a good day. That thing was loaded for bear, man. The amount of discs you could throw in that oh, thing. It was. Oh, I loved it. Uh, it was again, it was like I, I literally have a mini fridge in my man cave that's smaller than an E450. Yeah, that's a big one. That yeah. cools my beer. That that's yeah. how <laughs> massive Actually, these if things. There, were. It was aside from a PDP11 or whatever. If there's a piece of computing gear that I would like to have in my museum, it would be that mm. Sun uh, E450 uh, cube. But that that thing was awesome. Yeah, I used to have a bunch of those too, and I got rid of because they take up a lot of space. They take <laughs> like, a lot of space. Be, like, yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> Are we, are we going to wrap this yeah, shit up? Yeah, I was just going to say yeah. that's a perfect segue. Thank you, everyone, <laughs> for listening and watching to this edition of Paul Security Weekly. Someone take us out. Over and, well, you know, out. 